You're listening to the Stephen Wolfram Podcast, an exploration of thoughts and ideas from the founder and CEO of Wolfram Research, creator of Wolfram Alpha and the Wolfram Language. In this episode of What We've Learned from NKS, Stephen is counting down to the 20th anniversary of a new kind of science with a chapter retrospective. Let's have a listen. All right. Hello, everyone. So this is the beginning of what will be, I hope, a 12-week odyssey looking at the 12 chapters of this thing that I spent a decade of my life from 1991 until, well, 2002 writing. And um, I, want to, I wanted to talk a little bit about what's in this book and uh, how it's evolved over the last 20 years since um, it will be on May 14th of this year, it will be the 20th anniversary of the original publication of this book. And I'm, I'm certainly kind of thrilled at how much it's been possible to build on the ideas in the book. And it's also, uh, I look at the online version of the book, which is available to the world, uh, to everyone, um, uh, every day, particularly these days, because there's just a lot of interesting content in it. And I wanted to talk a little bit about that. Maybe I should mention one thing about the physical book. By the way, you can still get these physical books. They are absolutely available from us and from bookstores and so on. But, you know, one, one fact about this physical book is it has a dust cover. But actually, I always think it's much better without its dust cover. And I, I have lots of copies of this that are convenient for um, bookends as well as for uh, their true content. But I would just like to advertise the fact that the inside, the, um, the inside cover is arguably better than the outside cover. Um, the outside cover was more for bookstore distribution than for keeping for 20 years. All right, so what I want to do is uh, talk a bit today. I'm going to talk about chapter one of uh, New Kind of Science. There are 12 chapters altogether. Let me uh, just um, share here to um, put these up. Um, that's that's the uh, table of contents for New Kind of Science. There's a website, wolframscience.com, um, where you can find the whole book online. Uh, actually, over the course of the next few months, uh, more and more extra pieces will go live on this website. Um, in particular, one thing, all of the code that made all of the pictures in New Kind of Science, it's all Wolfram language code. And... Uh, uh, it still runs from the 1990s, although it has probably more hairy detail to do with positioning on pages and things than one will want to see. And we're gradually getting it ready so that one will be able to click on any picture in the book and, um, the, uh, 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 and be able to get the code that can reproduce that picture in a modern uh, Wolfram language. All right. Well... Let's start off with chapter one, the foundations for a new kind of science. In some ways, this is not my favorite chapter. I don't think I've reread this chapter. I was just rereading some pieces of it, actually. I, I don't think I had reread this chapter in many years. I would say that in my own use of new kind of science, the book, um, it's uh, the pictures in it are very uh, useful for me. Um, the notes at the back of the book just have a huge, huge amount of content in them. That is, in a sense, uh, really, uh, the, the main, main text of the book is kind of the overall narrative of the, the story of a new kind of science. Um, and uh, 
I would say that, well, let, let me start off with the very beginning of the book because it kind of says what the point is. Um, and what I'm going to do maybe today is go through a little bit what's in chapter one of the book and my kind of reflections on it 20 years later. I'll talk also a bit about the notes to um, uh, chapter one. And maybe if there's time, I will go back and talk about the preface and some of the uh, uh, the notes to the preface, which are at least uh, definitely fun and kind of interesting to read 20 years later. All right, so let's begin at the beginning here. So I can I could just uh, read through this just to give a sense of what's here. So this is uh, the very beginning. So I I think uh, the first the first paragraph here really kind of says what the point was with some degree of, uh, of forcefulness, if of clarity. I just said. Three centuries ago, science was transformed by the dramatic new idea that rules based on mathematical equations could be used to describe the natural world. My purpose in this book is to initiate another such transformation and to introduce a new kind of science that is based on the much more general types of rules that can be embodied in simple computer programs. And I say it's taken me the better part of 20 years that means from 40 years ago now, to build the intellectual structure that's needed, but I've been amazed by its results. For what I found is that with the new kind of science I've developed, it suddenly becomes possible to make progress on a remarkable range of fundamental issues that have never successfully been addressed by any of the existing sciences before. So what I go on to talk about here is what th this idea that one should be able to do theoretical science is an idea that is not obvious that it would work. It's not obvious that the universe would follow definite rules or that anything would follow definite rules. But as soon as you say things follow definite rules, you have sort of the foundation for doing theoretical science. And then the big question is, what kinds of rules? And uh, as I say here, there's no reason to think that systems like those we see in nature should follow only traditional mathematical rules. And Early in history, it might have been difficult to imagine what more general types of rules could be like. But today, we are surrounded by computers whose programs, in effect, implement a huge variety of rules. The programs we use in practice are mostly based on extremely complicated rules specifically designed to perform particular tasks. But a program can, in principle, follow essentially any definite set of rules. And at the core of the new kind of science that I describe in this book are discoveries I've made about programs with some of the very simplest rules that are possible. One might have thought, as I at first certainly did, that if the rules for a program were simple, then this would mean that its behavior must also be correspondingly simple. For our everyday experience in building things, that we tend to get the idea that the intuition that creating complexity is somehow difficult and requires rules or plans that are themselves complex. But the pivotal discovery that I made some 18 years ago, which is now uh, 38 years ago, is that in the world of programs, such intuition is not even close to correct. I did what is in a sense one of the simplest, one of the most elementary imaginable computer experiments. I took a sequence of simple programs and then systematically ran them to see how they behaved. And what I found to my great surprise was that despite the simplicity of their rules, the behavior of the programs was often far from simple. Indeed, some of the very simplest programs that I looked at had behavior that was as complex as anything I'd ever seen. It took me more than a decade to come to terms with this result and to realize just how fundamental and far-reaching its consequences are. In retrospect, there's no reason the result could not have been found centuries ago, but increasingly I've come to, to view it as one of the more important single discoveries in the history of theoretical science. 
For in addition to opening up vast new domains of exploration, it implies a radical rethinking of how processes in nature and elsewhere work. These were definitely energetic uh, and ambitious words written a bit more than 20 years ago now. Uh, I think they're right. And it's been rather lovely to see in the intervening time this really dramatic transition from a world in which when one talked about doing exact science, one was typically referring to doing things with mathematical equations to a world in which the, variety, the majority of new models that are made of things are made with programs in just the kind of way that my opening paragraph here imagined. So that's been a very, a very satisfying thing to see. And it's been, it's been very uh, uh, significant to see what can be built on that, on that foundational idea. I go on to say here, it could have been after all that in the natural world, we well, actually, no, I, I, I was commenting here, perhaps immediately most dramatic is that it yields a resolution to what has long been considered the single greatest mystery of the natural world. What secret it is that allows nature seemingly so effortlessly to produce so much that appears to us so complex. It could have been after all that in the natural world, we will mostly see forms like squares and circles that we consider simple. But in fact, one of the most striking features of the natural world is that across a vast range of physical, biological, and other systems, we're continually confronted with what seems to be immense complexity. And indeed, throughout most of history, it has been taken almost for granted that such complexity, being so vastly greater than in the works of humans, could only be the work of a supernatural being. But my discovery that many very simple programs produce great complexity immediately suggests a rather different explanation. For all it takes is that systems in nature operate like typical programs, and then it follows that their behavior will often be complex. And the reason that such complexity is not usually seen in human artifacts is just that in building these, we tend in effect to use programs that are specially chosen to give only behavior simple enough for us to be able to see that it will achieve the purposes we want. One might have thought that with all their successes over the past few centuries, the existing sciences would long ago have managed to address the issue of complexity. But in fact, they have not. And indeed, for the most part, they have specifically defined their scope in order to avoid direct contact with it. For while their basic idea of describing behavior in terms of mathematical equations works well in cases like planetary motion, where the behavior is fairly simple, it almost inevitably fails whenever the behavior is more complex. And more or less the same is true of descriptions based on ideas like natural selection in biology. But by thinking in terms of programs, the new kind of science that I develop in this book is for the first time able to make meaningful statements about even immensely complex behavior. In the existing sciences, much of the emphasis of the past century or so has been on breaking systems down to find their underlying parts, then trying to analyze these parts in as much detail as possible. And particularly in physics, this approach has been sufficiently successful that the basic components of everyday systems are by now completely known. But just how these components act together to produce even some of the most obvious features of the overall behavior we see in the past remained almost in complete mystery. Within the framework of the new kind of science that I develop in this book, however, it finally becomes possible to address such a question. So from the tradition of the existing sciences, one might expect that its answer would depend on all sorts of details and be quite different for different types of physical, biological, and other systems. But in the world of simple programs, I've discovered that the basic forms of behavior, same basic forms of behavior occur over and over again, almost independent of underlying details. 
And what this suggests is that there are quite universal principles that determine overall behavior and that can be expected to apply not only to simple programs, but also to systems throughout the natural world and elsewhere. In the existing sciences, whenever a phenomenon is encountered that seems complex, it's almost taken for granted that the phenomenon must be the result of some underlying mechanism that is itself complex. But my discovery that simple programs can produce great complexity makes it clear that this is in fact not correct. And indeed, in the later parts of this book, I will show that even remarkably simple programs seem to capture the essential mechanisms responsible for all sorts of important phenomena that in the past have always seemed far too complex to allow any simple explanation. It's not uncommon in the history of science that new ways of thinking are what finally allow long-standing issues to be addressed. But I've been amazed at just how many issues central to the foundations of the existing sciences I've been able to address by using the idea of thinking in terms of simple programs. For more than a century, for example, there's been a confusion about how thermodynamic behavior arises in physics. Yet from my discoveries about simple programs, I've developed a quite straightforward explanation. And in biology, my discoveries provide for the first time an explicit way to understand just how it is that so many organisms exhibit such great complexity. Indeed, I even have increasing evidence, I said then, that thinking in terms of simple programs will make it possible to construct a single truly fundamental theory of physics from which space, time, quantum mechanics, and all the other known features of our universe will emerge. I had the first kind of signs that that would be possible. It, it took another 20 years to sort of bring that to fruition and to get to the point where we have in our uh, physics project in the last couple of years, which has been very exciting to see. It's kind of the, the next big step. And it required a number of really important ideas that build on, that sort of take for granted the ideas of a new kind of science, but build to another level. And I'll talk a bit about that later. So I went on here to say, when mathematics was introduced into science, it provided for the first time an abstract framework in which scientific conclusions could be drawn without direct reference to physical reality. Yet, despite all its development over the past few thousand years, mathematics itself has continued to concentrate only on rather specific types of abstract systems, most often ones somehow derived from arithmetic or geometry. But the new kind of science I describe in this book introduces what are in a sense much more general abstract systems based on rules of essentially any type whatsoever. Now, I will add a footnote to this that one of the things that's come out of our physics project is that a better understanding of the sort of true foundations of mathematics, and in fact, a thing I've been working on for the last several months, has been a sort of physicalization of metamathematics that I think allows one to go quite a bit further than I was able to say 20 years ago about um, understanding kind of the, the role and, and place of mathematics um, in, in the structure of science. But anyway, I went on here to say, one might have thought that such systems would be too diverse for meaningful general statements to be made about them, that is systems with, with uh, general abstract systems. But the crucial idea that has allowed me to build a unified framework for the new kind of science that I describe in this book is that just as the rules for any system can be viewed as corresponding to a program, so also its behavior can be viewed as corresponding to a computation. Traditional intuition might suggest that to do more sophisticated computations would always require more sophisticated underlying rules. But what launched the whole computer revolution is the remarkable fact that universal systems with fixed underlying rules can be built that can in effect perform any possible computation. The threshold for such universality has however generally been assumed to be high and to be reached only by elaborate and special systems like typical electronic computers. 
But one of the surprising discoveries in this book is that, in fact, there are systems whose rules are simple enough to describe in just one sentence that are nevertheless universal. And this immediately suggests that the phenomenon of universality is vastly more common and important in both abstract systems and nature than has ever been imagined before. And I have to say that, that since the book, uh, in the book, one of the, the big results was the Rule 110 cellular automaton and its universality. Since the book, there was a, another uh, sort of threshold of universality question that was raised in the book about the simplest Turing machine that could conceivably be universal. And a few years after the, uh, uh, the publication of the book, uh, I put up a prize um, for somebody to prove or disprove the universality of that Turing machine. And um, a chap called Alex Smith was able to prove that indeed that Turing machine is universal, giving another sort of uh, uh, boost to the things that I say here about the threshold of universality. And, and there's, there have been more results along similar lines. There's, there's one that I strongly suspect now about combinators that we put up another prize for uh, as yet unclaimed. Um, we'll see how that, that goes too. But I go on here to say, and this is in a sense, in, in many ways, the punchline, uh, what I view as being a punchline of, um, uh, of the science that um, uh, is a new kind of science. I say, but on the basis of many, of many discoveries, I have been led to a still more sweeping conclusion, summarized in what I call the principle of computational equivalence, that whenever one sees behavior that is not obviously simple in essentially any system, it can be thought of as corresponding to a computation of equivalent sophistication. And this um, one very basic principle has a quite unprecedented array of implications for science and scientific thinking. And I have to say that I thought there were many implications back 20 years ago, but they pale in comparison with what is now clear uh, exists. Anyway, I go on to say uh, back in, in the book, for a start, it immediately gives a fundamental explanation for why simple programs can show behavior that seems to us complex. For like other processes, our own processes of perception and analysis can be thought of as computations. But though we might have imagined that such computations would always be vastly more sophisticated than those performed by simple programs, the principle of computational equivalence implies that they are not. And it is this equivalence between us as observers and the systems that we observe that makes the behavior of such systems seem to us complex. One can always in principle find out how a particular system will behave just by running an experiment and watching what happens. But the great historical successes of theoretical science have typically revolved around finding mathematical formulas that instead directly allow one to predict the outcome. Yet in effect, this relies on being able to shortcut the computational work that the system itself performs. And the principle of computational equivalence now implies that this will normally be possible only for rather special systems with simple behavior. For other systems will tend to perform computations that are just as sophisticated as those we can do, even with all of our mathematics and computers. And this means that such systems are computationally irreducible. So that in effect, the only way to find their behavior is to trace each of their steps, spending about as much computational effort as the systems themselves. So this implies that there is in a sense a fundamental limitation to theoretical science, but it also shows that there's something irreducible that can be achieved by the passage of time. And it leads to an explanation of how we as humans, even though we may follow definite underlying rules, can still in a meaningful way show free will. One feature of many of the most important advances in science throughout history is that they show new ways in which we as humans are not special. 
And at some level, the principle of computational equivalence does this as well, for it implies that when it comes to computation or intelligence, we are in the end no more sophisticated than all sorts of simple systems and all sorts of systems in nature. But from the principle of computational equivalence, there also emerges a new kind of unity for across a vast range of systems, from simple programs to brains to our whole universe, the principle implies that there is a basic equivalence that makes the same fundamental phenomena occur and allows the same basic scientific ideas and methods to be used. And is this that ultimately is ultimately responsible for the great power of the new kind of science that I describe in this book. So the way I would say some of these things today is, uh, uh, is just a little differently. I think one of the things that I've talked a lot about is this notion of the computational universe of simple programs. I didn't mention that specifically in this introduction. This concept of there's this, there's our physical universe and then there's the computational universe of all possible programs. Something that I've realized only in the last couple of years and, and with, uh, with sort of full force only probably in the last six months is that this combination of all possible programs running uh, in a sort of this entangled uh, process of computation executed by all these possible programs, this in itself is a thing. I call it the Rouliad. And it's that's the thing that in the end underlies the physics we see in our universe and also the mathematics we see in, in all in, in the structure of mathematics that we, we generate. And I think one of the things that I've realized, a uh, new kind of science basically went from sort of a paradigm of doing science that was you just write down an equation to do science to one in which one's talking about just specify the rules in a way that is computational, or just in a sense, specify the rules in some precise formal way. We refer to that as computational because we're used to dealing with computers as our way of thinking about those kinds of things. Set up those rules, see what they do. There's a kind of science that you can do that revolves around looking at those rules and seeing what they do. I mean, to me, and I, I certainly thought this 20 years ago, there's sort of this pure NKS science, the science of what simple programs do, the abstract science of what simple programs do. And then there's sort of the applications of that, both in terms of making models of things and in terms of ways that one can think about things. And I think uh, recently I've, I've started calling this sort of pure NKS the study of rules and what they do, the science of ruleology. And we're going to be rolling out some more things related to that soon. But that's that's kind of the, the sort of the, the most, the core of this new kind of science that I introduced in, in, uh, in the new kind of science book is this study ruleology, understand at an abstract level how programs with simple rules behave. And then, and that's sort of the first part of the book, if we go back to the um, the, 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 the overall table of contents for the book. The, the first part of the book is devoted to kind of ruleology. What do simple programs actually do out there in the computational universe of all possible programs? And then the second part of the book is devoted to the question of, okay, so we have these simple programs, they are raw material for understanding things that perhaps we have looked at before in biology and physics and so on. How can we use this, this new source of models that we have in simple programs to inform the ways that we think about these kinds of systems? And that's the sort of the second part of the book. Um, the third part of the book is, is really talking about what are the principles that we extract 
from this study of ruleology, the study of all possible programs, the, the study of what those kinds of programs do, and what do we learn from the ways that those seem to fit into actually modeling things in the real world? And that's where I introduced the principle of computational equivalence and so on, and study its consequences. Now, for people, and, and I'm happy to say there have been many people who've studied this book in, in, in a lot of detail, and chapter nine is always uh, somehow referred to in a, in a very special way, because it's the chapter where I talked about my ideas about fundamental physics, which turned out to be uh, very much on the right track, but there was further to go. And it took 20 years before I kind of jumped back into it um, with uh, my great young collaborators and um, was able to take the next set of steps. And, but that really built on this foundation of this idea of the sort of computational universe of possible simple programs, the principle of computational equivalence, the idea of computational irreducibility, those kinds of things sort of almost had to be a generation old. They almost had to be things you took for granted to build the next step, so to speak. So to me, I, I view kind of, I, I've recently kind of viewed the sort of the big picture of the history of science as sort of these four epochs in the idea of how one makes models of things from, from antiquity, where it was kind of the structural idea of what are things made of, to the 1600s, where it was kind of the idea of uh, what um, uh, can you write down a mathematical equation, to what started in the 1980s, and I, and I hope kind of flourished in new kind of science, which was this new idea of using programs as sort of the raw material that you could, where you write down a program and see its consequences, and that's how you understand the kind of how things work in the world. And there's a fourth paradigm, which has emerged from our physics project, which is what I call the multi-computational paradigm, which I won't talk about here, but this is the thing that's sort of new in the last year or two, and it's something which, in a sense, you know, takes NKS for granted and takes another big step. And it will allow one to address a whole new collection of questions. I think that NKS allows one to address a collection of questions that were not accessible to kind of the structural paradigm for science or the mathematical paradigm for science. They are accessible in our computational paradigm for science. And that's something that one has been able to see quite clearly in a lot of work people have done over the last 20 years in applying simple programs and computational models in general to all kinds of different things that show up in the natural and artificial world. So, okay, let me let me dive in a little bit more here and um, look at um, some more of what, what I had to say here. Maybe I should look, I, I would like to just sort of advertise the importance of the notes. Uh, and um, the, uh, the notes were sort of succinct summaries of um, uh, many, many different topics. And I, I, I'm, I'm always uh, happy to see when people have taken chunks of the notes and stuck them in Wikipedia, because I think they, they, uh, they serve a good purpose there. Let's take a look at some of these notes. So I have a note here about mathematics and science and talking about um, the, uh, uh, the kind of the, the arc uh, I've talked about NKS as being kind of the next step beyond kind of the idea of mathematics as a foundation for science. So this note talked about uh, kind of what was the idea of mathematics and science? How did that, how did that come about? How did that um, 
how, how did that work? And as I say here, the 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 sort of the the, the watershed moment was in 1687, the publication of Isaac Newton's book, uh, Principia Mathematica, the Mathematical Principles of Natural Philosophy. And but that that idea that you could take mathematics that have been developed for commerce, for land surveying, for explaining things in astronomy, and one could one could use that as the foundation to build science. That was kind of the core idea that emerged with Galileo and then and then with Newton um, in the 1600s. I think the um, I talk here about the fact that Babylonians were certainly using arithmetic to kind of make predictions about things like astronomy. Pythagoreans by 500 BC were talking about the idea that all is number, that everything can be reduced to numbers from from musical harmony to the way that um, uh, the way that things work in nature. Some of what they had to say about number we would now think of as quite mystical. Um, some of it was sort of the precursors of modern science. The um, and there were there were lots of else done in antiquity between Euclid's work on geometry and particularly Archimedes and Ptolemy uh, working on on astronomy and optics and mechanics and so on. Uh, it's interesting by by the late 1600s, I talk about Albertus Magnus, who uh, says uh, many of the geometers' figures are not found in natural bodies, and many natural figures, particularly those of animals and plants, are not determinable by the art of geometry. By which he meant geometers' figures are things like triangles and and circles and and so on, things that can be, in Euclid's sense, constructed using ruler and compass. Um, the uh, uh, what he observed was, well, you look at the shape of a typical animal and it's not something you could construct with ruler and compass. There's a, there's a thing that goes beyond kind of the, the purely uh, geometrical there. But um, Roger Bacon, 1267, was writing that mathematics is the door and key to the sciences. And by the 1500s, it was kind of... Uh, uh, taken for granted that if science was going to be truly meaningful, it somehow must have the systematic character of mathematics. Leonardo da Vinci uh, wrote that no human inquiry can be called science unless it pursues its path through mathematical exposition and demonstration. So that was, uh, um, in a sense, now, uh, in, in some sense, what Leonardo da Vinci meant by mathematics it's probably in many ways the same kind of thing as is meant by mathematics when it's taught in school today. One could have imagined that mathematics, and I'll talk about this in another one of the notes here, uh, that mathematics, the definition of it, could have expanded to talk about the kinds of things that we're describing with simple rules and computational systems, but it didn't. Mathematics stayed talking about the kinds of things that uh, uh, were the, the geometers' figures and so on. So Galileo actually was, was famous around the end of the 1500s for saying that uh, the universe could only be understood in the language of mathematics, whose characters, he said, are triangles, circles, and other geometric figures. So, uh, and that was kind of the, the, you know, that's the language of math, the, the, you know, the language of nature is the language of mathematics. What Newton did was to say that, well, actually, there are, you can write down abstract laws that allow you to deduce things about nature purely on the basis of mathematical constructs. Well, uh, I, I talk here about how in, uh, in the period after Newton, 
for a long time that there was sort of great success as progress was made, particularly in physics and so on. Um, and uh, uh, the mathematical approach to science had limited success in, in areas like biology and economics. Um, and uh, the, um, uh, uh, you know, but people kind of felt that that was a limitation, not of the underlying mathematical methodology, but rather of those fields of biology and economics and so on. If only they could be pushed further, then it would be possible to have this underlying tool of mathematics succeed in them. So David Hilbert in 1900 uh, said, mathematics is the foundation of all exact knowledge of natural phenomena. So, um, and uh, Alfred Whitehead, co-author with Bertrand Russell of the Whitehead and Russell Principia Mathematica Foundations of Mathematics um, uh, books in 1910 or so. Uh, Alfred Whitehead said um, it's, it, that uh, all science as it grows toward perfection becomes mathematical in its ideas. Now, to be fair, given computation, which was not a thing in his day, he might nowadays have said, all science as it grows towards perfection becomes formal and theoretical in its ideas. And he might have intended that to encompass ideas of computation. But as it was, he talked about mathematics and as mathematics evolved, it didn't uh, pull in other kinds of things. In fact, the very next note in NKS talks about the definition of mathematics. In fact, I say here, when I use the term mathematics, what I mean is that field of human endeavor that has in practice traditionally been called mathematics. One could in principle imagine defining mathematics to encompass all studies of abstract systems. And indeed, this was the essence of the definition that I had in mind when I chose the name Mathematica. Yes, that's a, that's a long and complicated story. Mathematica, which is now um, uh, just over a third of a century old, uh, when I named that, it was not clear what the future of mathematics would be and to what extent what is now kind of computational X would be, would be uh, encompassed by things one calls mathematics. But it's now very clear that there's been sort of a fork in the road between that which one thinks of as purely mathematical and that which one thinks of as computational. Now, it's somewhat ironic, perhaps, that my own very recent work on the physicalization of metamathematics kind of shows that sort of underneath mathematics, there's a kind of computational underpinning. But what we see is, is this the way in which mathematics is, is a sort of a particular slice of that computational infrastructure, a particular slice that is appropriate for sort of human mathematical observers. But anyway, I think um, uh, I talk here a little bit about um, uh, the methodology of mathematics and its difference to the methodology that, that I used in New Kind of Science. I mean, one of the things I, I was really struck, I was talking to somebody just recently who was talking about um, the uh, the kinds of ideas that um, are in the New Kind of Science book and was kind of trying to characterize them quite quite accurately, actually, and, and sort of saying, um, you know, well, I guess what was there was really a new kind of science. And then he paused and said, actually, I guess that was what you called the book. And it's like, yeah, that was, um, I mean, I... I it was a, a bold title, but I think an accurate title, and I think it's become clearer over time about the accuracy of that title. I have to say, had I written the book today, I think my style of writing has changed a bit more to the, the more or shucks style of writing um, about, uh, about discoveries and so on. Um, perhaps, uh, um, perhaps as I've had more discoveries in my life, 
I've uh, I've taken more of an Orshak's attitude towards them. The the ones earlier on uh, kind of um, loom larger and seem more significant uh, personally, so to speak. Um, and um, uh, I think that that's um, that's an interesting thing. In fact, there's a there's a note in the NKS book um, about clarity and modesty, which maybe we'll come to in, in a little bit here. Um, well, I, I talk here about the fact that you know mathematics has had this big emphasis. You know, you read a mathematics paper, it's all about, we've got this assertion, let's now prove this assertion. It's all about sort of uh, defining this idea of proof. Whereas the kind of the, the approach of the sort of pure NKS approach, the ruleology approach, is just consider a rule and see what its behavior is. That's a sort of a different, it's kind of a forward workflow of take this thing, this rule we've defined and see what its consequences are rather than take this assertion that we have and try and work backwards and find a proof based on some pre-existing axioms and so on. Um, now, by the way, in, in my recent work in metamathematics, um, we actually are going in the forward direction. So take these axioms and just you know, tree out the giant collection of theorems that they produce. I, I talked about that a little bit in, in, in chapter 12, A New Kind of Science, but I've uh, that's now much more developed. All right, let's see. Um, I talk here a little bit more about reasons for mathematics and science. Um, it's, uh, well, I say here, it's not surprising that there should be issues in science to which mathematics is relevant, since until about a century ago, the whole purpose of mathematics was thought to be to provide abstract idealizations for aspects of physical reality. Um, the, the issue, though, as I, as I say here, is that there's no reason to think that the, that the ideas that have emerged in mathematics in the past are ones that will cover all the kinds of things that the natural world throws at us. Now, I have to say that one of my more recent points of view is that um, the things that um, uh, are the things that we get to kind of um, talk about in our science are just that slice of kind of what is computationally possible that we humans are capable with our senses and our cognitive abilities of kind of, uh, of parsing. And I, I, I was just glancing at this uh, earlier today and I I'd completely forgotten this, um, uh, this, this statement here, which I said down here, one explanation uh, for this fact often noticed that there's sort of uh, uh, there's unreasonable effectiveness in mathematics and the natural sciences. One explanation of this advanced by Albert Einstein was that the only physical laws we can recognize are ones that are easy to express in our system of mathematics. I, I have to go look up where, where Einstein said that because I think in, in now, from what I now understand, okay, probably a century after that was said, from what I finally understand, that's a, that's a quite... Um, uh, that's a statement uh, uh, rather close to the mark. I think that um, uh, th this idea that the only physical laws we can recognize are ones that are easy to express, he said, in our system of mathematics, but I might say in our kind of cognitive framework, um, those are, th but that there could be other physical laws, that our physical universe has the ability to be parsed in a quite different way than we parse it. And, you know, the putative aliens could be parsing the physical universe in a quite different way. So they're living in, in a sense, the same physical universe, but have utterly different physical laws to describe how it works. So it's interesting that Einstein noticed this, this point specifically with respect to mathematics. Um, 
I talk about here, you know, I, I might say one of the things that I spent a lot of effort on in writing the NKS book was all these historical notes. And I, I really put, uh, put a lot of primary historical effort into these notes of, in many cases, when they're about more recent history, actually talking to the people involved in them, looking at all the primary documents, all this kind of thing. And in more recent years, I've uh, sort of um, uh, written at much greater length about historical kinds of things in the NKS book. I did all the work and then compressed it into two sentences, so to speak. Now, uh, that comparable amount of work, I would actually describe a bunch of that work in, in pages of, of, uh, of, of writings that I make. And you know, I, I produced this book a few years ago called Idea Makers, which is a collection of kind of historical biography uh, items, uh, many of which the, the sort of the core uh, kind of investigation of those biographies I did in connection with the NKS book. Um, but uh, I then subsequently wrote about them in more detail. Um, I, I talked here about um, this notion that um, uh, the, you know, could there be um, programs that represent nature? Uh, and, you know, given this idea of programs to represent nature, can you go back in history and find places where people talked about this before? And, and the answer is yes, you can, um, although in slightly different terms. Like, for example, around 100 AD, uh, Lucretius, uh, uh, the, um, uh, wrote, uh, well, he had this book called De Rerum Natura on the nature of things. And he had this really lovely suggestion that the universe, it's a, a, a book written in Latin poetry, um, the, that the universe might consist of atoms that were assembled according to grammatical rules, what he thought of as grammatical rules, in the same kind of way that letters and words are organized in human language. And I think that's a quite poetic view of kind of what we now think about the way that one can take kind of these elements and by certain rules, he thought of them as grammatical rules of sort of constraints of how grammar works, organize them into things that are like what we see in the world. And, and anyway, that, that was sort of one early precursor that one can see. Um, the, uh, uh, a common metaphor from Ptolemy to Kepler and so on was this idea of sort of clockwork, that there would be that things like planets would follow geometrical rules that are like the elements of a mechanical clock. And that's sort of a program-like idea. Um, but by the time Newton uh, came out with just, you know, just trust the mathematics, write down the equations, use calculus, this idea that there might be sort of a clockwork mechanism fell kind of into disrepute. And um, it sort of re-emerged. There were, you know, ideas like genetics and heredity, where there were sort of simple program-like rules that were, were talked about. But really, it kind of um, it fell by the wayside relative to this idea of let's just use calculus-type mathematics and blast through the problem, so to speak. So uh, the um, 1940s and 1950s, uh, one gets uh, neural networks, early neural networks from the 1940s made with electronic circuits and so on, cellular automata uh, made both theoretically and in some cases in early things like early image processing and so on. Um, but uh, uh, the, they weren't viewed as being kind of things for themselves. They were viewed in a few cases as being technological systems, in many cases as being things which if they were anything to do with nature, they were some kind of idealization of the true mathematical equations on which nature operates. So uh, let's see. Well, I talk about um, 
I talk a bit about logic here as another kind of foundational possibility for what science could be based on. I'll talk, I, I, I talked a lot more about that in the book and subsequently um, it's, uh, uh, I think logic was kind of, it used to be, you know, back in the middle ages, you know, the two things taught in school were, you know, logic and mathematics and, uh, you know, mathematics, you know, really won out, logic did not. Um, logic as of the Middle Ages was was a bit closed-ended. It didn't have the kind of the, the reach that mathematics had it. Actually, the reason for that was really that logic is a decidable theory. It's a theory where, in principle, you can finitely decide any question in, in basic logic, whereas mathematics, in the end, has undecidability and Gödel's theorem and all that kind of thing, and it's something where you can have infinitely long proofs to establish things, where you can have sort of infinite processes. So in a sense, logic, by its very success of being something where you can really nail everything down, ended up being rather closed-ended and didn't have the kind of mileage for the next 500 years that, um, that mathematics has had. But in any case, that was kind of another foundational idea. And one could at some level think that logic, and it did in some ways, historically led to this notion of mathematical logic and computation and so on. Um, but logic, as it was kind of, people were never thinking never thought, I believe, about you know, logic as a foundation for natural science. That's just not really a thing. I mean, there were a few tiny sort of uh, tiny little sprouts that began along those lines. But unlike mathematics, which was for hundreds of years kind of a dominant theoretical foundation for natural science, logic never made it to that. It always was thought of as a as a different kind of thing, maybe something related to human thinking, maybe something related to mathematics, but not natural science. Okay, I had another note here about complexity and theology. Um, so I talk about um, here, and it's sort of interesting that a lot of the, the basic thinking about uh, kind of foundational questions in science was thinking that was going on uh, in the theologians in the, in the Middle Ages and, 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 else, and at other times. Um, and by the time the science came along and mathematicized, the, the theologians were sort of out of that game. Um, and so insofar as one is kind of going back to uh, rethink some of the foundations of science that existed at a time when sort of theology was the primary uh, kind of intellectual uh, frontier, um, one is sort of thrust back into some of the same kinds of questions that were being asked then. So I, I talk about here um, uh, that complexity and order in the natural world are cited as evidence for an intelligent creator. And that's a that's a common theme. The fact that there is order in the world means to some that 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 that, that, that there's sort of a purpose to the world. Um, and it's you know in a lot of early mythologies, kind of things started in chaos, and then some supernatural being added order and created particular natural systems. Um, it, it's uh, um, I guess I comment here about uh, complexity. Aristotle talked about what nature makes, he said, is finer than art. But, you know, he was a big cataloger of natural phenomena. I don't think that particularly affected his discussion of that. Um, the uh, Thomas Aquinas, 1270, uh, gave a famous argument for the existence of God uh, from the fact that things in nature seem to act for an end. For example, in respect to the fact that they always act in the same way, that there are definite natural laws that determine how things act. And so his inference from that 
is, in his way of thinking about it, that the things must have been specifically designed with that end in mind. Not that I'm not sure one would take that. I, th I think that's a that's kind of relates to you know Aristotle's um, uh, four different possible causes and so on. You know, is there a sort of final cause for things? I don't think one can infer that, but that's what Aquinas argued. So, again, by the time there was mathematical science, this kind of whole uh, sort of theological arguments for the way things were sort of began to recede. Newton, for example, famously said that, you know, um, first God set the planets uh, on their courses, but their mathematical laws took over to govern all of their subsequent behavior. Um, and uh, But in biology, even though in, in physics, kind of, you know, the, the role of, of uh, the supernatural being, so to speak, was put um, sort of somewhat to the side, in biology, it definitely thrived. I mean, the the um, I have a copy actually. I should have brought that here of of John Ray's 1691 book called "The Wisdom of God Manifested in the Works of the Creation," which is just a big long series of isn't it amazing that the this creature does this and the, that creature does that and so on, um, and uh, you know basically gave the argument these are these things are so complex that they must be the work of a supernatural being. And that famous quote along those lines from this field of natural theology that William Paley was a, was a big proponent of in the, in the early 1800s. Um, it, you know, if it took a sophisticated human watchmaker to make a mechanical watch of the day, then the only plausible explanation for the vastly greater complexity of biological organisms is they must have been created by a supernatural being. And so then the question was, well, what other mechanism could there be? And that's why uh, natural selection and, and Darwin's Origin of Species from 1859 was important as providing some kind of idea of what an alternative mechanism might be to lead to progressively to lead to complexity. I mean, Darwin thought the last sentence of Darwin's Origin of Species talks about how just as the earth continues to circle around the sun according to the fixed law of gravity, so organisms, uh, essentially, he says, more and more complex continue to evolve. So he, I believe, thought that there would be a fundamental law of biology that would say that, that biological organisms, by virtue of natural selection, become more and more complex. Uh, that never really panned out yet. Maybe with some of the things that we figured out from the physics project, we may have things to say about that question, finally. Um, but I think one of the big things in NKS was this question of, okay, where does complexity come from? Darwin sort of said, well, it somehow must come from natural selection. He didn't quite know how. And what in NKS I talk about a lot is the idea that you just, you know, pick a simple program at random, just as, you know, random genetic mutation might pick a program at random. And the point is that those simple programs have a high probability of generating what appears to us very complex behavior. And in a sense, it's sort of an incidental thing that you get complexity. It's not something you have to deeply work towards using some very careful series of, 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 uh, of, of steps. Um, let's see, I talked here about, um, uh, this is more, more history about the notion of complexity um, in, uh, in science. Uh, I, a few, few things to comment here on perhaps. Um, the, uh, uh, you know, the, the, this idea in the 1600s that started with Newton and so on, that um, uh, it should be possible to explain the operation of systems. I, actually, I, I comment here on things like uh, circulation of the blood, 
led to this idea of sort of mechanical explanations for everything, including biology. And Rene Descartes said in 1637 that one day it should be possible to explain the operation of a tree just like we do a clock. And actually, he said, he talked, I think, about maybe in 100 years from that time, it would be possible to explain the operation of a tree just like we explain the operation of a clock. Um, the, uh, um, I think, uh, uh, you know, that seemed to work in physics, but it didn't work in things like for actual trees in biology and so on. Immanuel Kant, 1790, another famous quote, it is absurd to hope that another Newton will arise in the future who will make comprehensible to us the production of a blade of grass according to natural laws. So Kant took a different point of view and said, no, 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 biology is simply never going to be accessible to anything that has the same kind of sort of formal structure that Newton had added to mathematics and mathematical physics. Um, but uh, uh, yeah, talk here about complexity and so on. Um, and uh, um, the, the, the point that in, um, uh, by concentrating on things where mathematics worked, whenever there was complexity, it was just kind of a nuisance. And people were like, let's concentrate on what's regular. You know, we look at the primes. We look at the sequence of primes. We don't look at the fact that there's a lot of randomness, apparent randomness in the actual distribution of primes. Rather, we concentrate on the average density of primes, which has some simpler form that we might be able to describe using traditional mathematical ideas. I talked a little bit here about the cybernetics movement from the 1940s with people like, uh, uh, well, Norbert Wiener particularly, and um, uh, John von Neumann talked a lot about networks and, and things modeled off the neurons and kind of the analogy between electric circuits and brains and, and things like this. Um, and, and that led to practical kinds of things like control theory, game theory, things like this. Um, but uh, it didn't really, the, the, the kind of, well, what really is complexity? Where's it coming from? And so on, didn't really get that much addressed. Um, the, uh, the, then that, that, that kind of merged into robotics, early AI, um, early uh, things about um, uh, sort of management science. That was a very early potential application for sort of the ideas of, of understanding complexity from the 1950s, was, which was when management science was really big, was, um, uh, the, um, uh, was this idea of let's use it to, to sort of model uh, human organizations. And um, I don't think I mentioned it here, but in, even by the, in the 1800s, there was this idea of sort of the social physics, use Newton, Newtonian type ideas to have a, a, um, a sort of a model of, of social science that would be on a par with the models of physics. This didn't work out yet. Um, anyway, I talked a bit about uh, some other kinds of approaches. Um, let me see, what else do we have in these notes? And then maybe I can talk a little bit about some... Um, uh, okay, let me let me uh, show you something else here. So another thing that I did in um, uh, in the first chapter of NKS is I, I did something which I'm not sure I, it's my, not my favorite part of the book. Um, I kind of gave short summaries of the relationship of what I was doing to other areas, to mathematics. Um, I talk about the fact that there are particular kinds of mathematical systems which are studied in mathematics, which are much, in a sense, much narrower than the set of all possible rules that one can study in studying the computational universe. I talk about physics. I just noticed that I had said, um, uh, uh, in the future of physics, the greatest triumph would undoubtedly be a truly fundamental theory for our whole universe. 
yet, let's say, despite occasional optimism, traditional approaches do not make this seem close at hand. But I say, with the methods and intuition that I develop in this book, there is, I believe, finally a serious possibility that such a theory can actually be found. And I, you know, 20 years later, we're in very good shape on that, I believe, uh, which, is, which is wonderful to see. Um, I talked to already a bit, bit about biology, uh, social science. Um, uh, I think this was mostly a kind of a, a, um, a don't apply this too quickly in social science kind of um, statement here. In computer science, I talk about the fact that really computer science has tended to be and still is mostly about programs we write that do particular things, not about the universal possible programs. And uh, that's this is this is not NKS is not computer science. Ruleology is not computer science. Uh, Ruleology is kind of the natural science of computer science, which is not the same thing as uh, as the sort of the engineering science of computer science. Um, I mentioned philosophy. I mentioned um, I mentioned art. Sort of an interesting thing. I mean, the the NKS book, I think. Uh, has been quite popular among people interested in, in uh, visual forms and, and architecture and so on. And uh, I think one of the things to realize is that, that in a sense, what we're doing by finding these simple programs that uh, we're, we're trying to find the essence of what makes nature tick, so to speak, what the essence of how things forms are created in nature. And that's, and so, so we get to kind of the underlying of what, in many cases, people have used nature as a as a uh, inspiration for art, but we are kind of going to the underlying to see what we can get, both things that nature has used and things that nature might have used but hasn't used, and we can make use of those to create form for things like art. Talked a little bit about technology here, saying basically that in my book called The New Kind of Science, then needless to say, it wasn't about technology. Uh, in the years since then, it's been kind of interesting to see the extent to which sort of from a technological point of view, things have emerged. So for example, we've made great use of the idea of just search the computational universe of possible programs for ones that are useful. Um, and I would say a much more dramatic example of that has come about from neural nets and deep learning and so on. Um, I would say that that hasn't yet really merged with the whole NKS idea. Um, you can view it as being sort of a, a more complicated version of an NKS-like idea. This notion that uh, you just take a neural net, which is in its original conception, a fairly simple program, though by the time you're actually dealing with a giant, you know, billion uh, weight neural net, it isn't such a simple thing. You take that thing and you're kind of giving it all this training data and you're finding that, it, yes, it can reproduce what happens in, in the natural world. I think there is a, a yet to come kind of big merger between sort of the, the a neural net in a sense, what it does intrinsically, just leave it to its own devices, will be quite simple. If you make it big enough and you bash it hard enough with training data, you can make it kind of interpolate and, and extrapolate what happens in the world. But the, its intrinsic dynamics is not that complicated. And there's usually a trade-off between the more complicated the intrinsic dynamics the more difficult it is to train the thing. In NKS, we're dealing with intrinsic dynamics where the original rules are very simple. The behavior is very complicated. Now the question is, how do you train that? And we don't really know that yet. And I think if we can train it 
it's kind of it's like it's like you can have the the very docile animal that's easy to train but it doesn't go very fast and doesn't do very exciting things or you can have the the animal that leaps and bounds but it's really hard to train and that's we we don't yet know how we take kind of the methodology of of deep learning and neural nets and apply that to kind of the the richness of kind of capabilities of the simple programs that we find in the kind of un 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 unconstrained computational universe. The neural nets, a bit like mathematics, are a very constrained corner of the computational universe. And as I say, there, there are methods now that we've understood for, you know, if you bash them hard enough, you can train them. We just don't know how to apply that to the to the richer kinds of things. Although there are a few ideas that have emerged from sort of things that come out of the physics project. All right, another thing that I did here, which which uh, probably not my favorite section here, but, but um, uh, was to kind of go through because people kept on asking me. You know, I, I mostly when I wrote the NKS book, I was I was basically a hermit and I sort of disappeared for a decade to do this um, longest, most difficult single project I've ever done and probably will ever do. Um, but you know, whenever I would sort of stick my head out and and ask people, tell people what I was doing, they would say, "And how does it relate to artificial life? How does it relate to chaos theory? How does it relate to this? How does it relate to that?" In fact, in some ways. The, the, the very title, A New Kind of Science, was intended to signal this idea, there's actually something new here. It's not, oh, how does it relate to this? Oh, I can understand it if I understand that. Because that was sort of a formula for getting confused. And, and I watched that happen many times. It's kind of interesting to see what I talked about. I talked about AI, which at the time was kind of a, a, um, a submerged field. I might say, by the way, when I, when I mentioned technology before, that for me personally, one of the big outcomes technologically from NKS was Wolfram Alpha. You say, what on earth is the relationship between Wolfram Alpha and our computational knowledge engine and, and NKS? They seem like opposite ends of the spectrum. You know, NKS is about these simple programs. Uh, Wolfram Alpha is about taking the, the sort of the detailed knowledge of the world and making it comp computable. Well, the real thing is that, and I'll talk about this in another session here, is that this principle of computational equivalence of mine kind of suggests this idea that there's no bright line distinction between the computation, the, the intelligent and the merely computational. And so I had long been interested in making kind of a computational knowledge system. And I kind of got to thinking after the NKS book, I got to thinking, look, if it is the case that uh, this really true, that there's no bright line between the intelligent and the merely and the merely computational, then it should be possible to make this thing that seemed like it would use need sort of human-like AI just using computation. And that's what kind of stimulated the possibility of building Wolf Alpha. And it turned out, yes, it does indeed work. But um, uh, I talk here about um, creating technological systems capable of human-like thinking. Um, I think the best sort of exhibit of something like that is the kinds of things that have been achieved with deep learning, although that wasn't specifically what I had in mind. I had in mind more something which would perhaps be a merger of those two things. I actually talked about that in a section of this book um, at a time when neural nets didn't seem like I had worked on neural nets back around 1980 and hadn't been able to figure out how to get them to do anything interesting. It was at a time when, when neural nets just didn't seem like they were, they were able to do interesting things before the discoveries that were made in, in 2011 and, and so on that launched modern deep learning. Well, at the time, artificial life was kind of a big thing. Um, that's uh, uh, this kind of idea of, you know, can you take um, uh, sort of, can you take 
uh, abstract computational systems and do they do things like living systems? The answer is sort of yes. Um, I think that's become a little less surprising in modern times, but uh, you know, whether it's malware on the web acting like living systems or whether it's other kinds of things, I'm not sure. Catastrophe theory is something perhaps people have barely heard of anymore. It's kind of a was a theory that was very popular in the 1970s, which I talked about here. Chaos theory people have more often heard of, um, although I have to say I think that it's um, uh, it's very confusing because the um, uh, the original idea of chaos theory, which is the sensor dependence on initial conditions, that if you that there are things like uh, uh, I don't know, you know, um, you know, when you flip a coin, which way it will come up depends in detail on how fast you flipped it because you're kind of excavating digits every time the, the coin sort of turns over. It's kind of saying, be more precise to know which way it's going to end up. But you have to be more precise about what the initial velocity was. And that's sort of extreme versions of that. You can certainly invent mathematically, even though they don't seem to show up very often in practice. There are things you can invent mathematically. And people kind of had this idea, which is a little bit muddled, I think, that, that um, uh, that you know, you can get complexity from just excavating initial conditions of things. So if you say I'm going to have precisely pi as the initial condition for my for my thing, or precisely some number that's a random collection of digits that goes on forever, then as I as I look at what the system does, it will gradually excavate more and more of those digits. But the problem is you kind of have to know where those digits come from in the first place. And you kind of have to say, uh, it's it's rather confusing in traditional mathematics because you sort of all real numbers are kind of equally producible. But that's not, you know, from, from uh, Alan Turing's original 1936 paper was called On Computable Numbers because he wanted to make the point that some real numbers were more producible than others. Some were computably producible. Some were just numbers you would write down, which you could imagine, but which you could not actually produce. And I think the, 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 the greater understanding of this notion of how do you actually make that initial condition makes the sort of chaos theory idea kind of recede a bit. I mean, it was a bit confusing because there was a well-known, uh, uh, I think quite well-written book by a guy called Jim Glick that came out um, that, uh, in which the end of the book, he had interviewed me, the end of the book talks about a bunch of stuff that that uh, uh, later on is stuff I talked about in the NKS book. And that was sort of bundled in a book that was called Chaos. And so that, that made the whole thing more chaotic even than it might otherwise have been in terms of understanding what was sort of the core idea of chaos theory versus other kinds of ideas. Uh, I talked about complexity theory, which I'm afraid I, I, I recently wrote a piece about Sort of where has complexity theory gone? Um, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's an interesting story. Um, I think it's a, it's a story that uh, I think looking back on NKS today, I think there are two key ideas. I, I, I just wrote about this a couple of months ago. There are two key ideas: uh, what I call meta modeling and what I call ruleology which are two key ideas that should be the things one should be talking about in studying sort of complexity. Um, maybe I shouldn't go into this in, in more detail here. I, I did have a, a, 
do a live stream about this a couple of months ago. Um, but uh, that's 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 kind of I think that the the takeaway from NKS is there's this kind of pure NKS of studying simple programs and what they do. There's this notion of meta modeling of going sort of taking the actual models that people have made that are often quite complicated of systems and saying what is the essence of this model? What is the underlying formal structure on which this model is based? Now I have to say on this page. Uh, you know, the things I'm talking about, cybernetics, people don't talk about that very much anymore. That was kind of an early, almost, you know, it could have been a pre-NKS, but it went, really went off in different directions about the practicalities of control systems and so on. Dynamical systems theory is kind of the mathematical underpinnings for, for chaos theory. Uh, things like general systems theory, which had a, a good, but, but well, a bit, bit hard to understand name, but that that really mostly ended up being a question of is there sort of a scientific theory of management and so on. And um, uh, really by the time I started working on this stuff by the late 1970s, it, it was, it was, it had sort of, to my, you know, seemed to have somewhat disappeared. Nanotechnology was a much bigger thing back 20 years ago than it, than it has seemed today. I think it will be back. Um, I think that uh, a big thing that NKS kind of suggests is that you can go from uh, nanotechnology was often about let's take a machine that we built at a large scale and let's shrink it down to be at a molecular scale. What NKS suggests is that one can go from the ingredients that one has at a molecular scale and see how to make them do something interesting. And in fact, just recently with ideas from our physics project, there's a lot of progress on thinking about how you do molecular scale computing. Um, there's things here that I'm afraid have not weathered the weathered time very well, like the concept of self-organization that was kind of a, a big buzzword back, um, oh, I don't know, in the in the 1980s, particularly maybe 70s as well, of of systems that spontaneously organize themselves, which is just not uh, that that's uh, it's. I mean, that, that's a sort of a, a small piece of the story of systems that just make themselves do complicated things. Um, well, okay. So another big thing that I that I did in this um, this very first chapter of, of NKS was was to tell a little bit of the personal story of how I ended up doing the science that's in the book. And I have to say, the the um, the sort of the the launching event was a thing was actually this book here, which I have in physical form. And um, the uh, this book, if I open up the the front cover, it says um, uh, I don't know if I can get that close enough to see, but but um, uh, I used to write when I got books. It says Stephen Wolf from June 1972, and then it says three pounds and 35 pence as the as the price of this book. It's probably more expensive now um, if it isn't out of print. But um, uh, anyway, I got this book. I was 12 years old at the time, and I was uh, learning physics. And um, the um, the cover of this book I found really interesting. It's like um, uh, this is you know this purports to be a picture of how uh, kind of the um, uh, you have molecules in a gas bouncing around and they they start in a fairly ordered state and they progressively get more disordered. And it's kind of shocking that, you know, the things I've been writing just recently about uh, the kind of foundations of metamathematics and so on, I use as an early analogy precisely the same phenomenon, that this, this phenomenon of kind of... Uh, this, this fundamental phenomenon of the second law of thermodynamics, the law of entropy increase, the tendency of systems to go from more ordered states to less ordered states. 
Anyway, I found that phenomenon really interesting when I was 12. I, I still find that phenomenon really interesting today, although I think I very deeply understand why that phenomenon happens now, and it's all to do with computational irreducibility. But that phenomenon is, in a sense, it is a place where raw computational sophistication is visible to all of us. And it is a place where implicitly kind of computational irreducibility really shows up. I mean, it shows up uh, much more explicitly when you're making, you know, a proof of work method for a for a cryptocurrency or something. But it comes up as a very much more of a of a visible thing, in um, a very very much more all around us kind of thing in statistical mechanics in the in 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 this law of entropy increase and so on. Now I have to say that I was I was years after that um, uh, that book. Years after I saw that book, I finally uh, tracked down this person, Bernie Alder, um, who had made those pictures. And um, they were oscilloscope output from a computer at Lawrence Livermore, what's now Lawrence Livermore Lab. And the thing that was really a bit of a shame was those pictures are a fake. Uh, what I thought they were is pictures showing if you have hard spheres bouncing around according to deterministic rules, what will happen to them. But... Um, it it didn't really work that way. And um, a lot of what is shown in those pictures came from the use of an early random number generator, middle square random number generator, actually it's a random number generation method invented by von Neumann um, that uh, was used to sort of set things up randomly. And then kind of most of what you see is kind of just that random initial setup, not the true phenomenon of the production of apparent randomness from something regular. But um, anyway, fortunately, I didn't know that back when I was 12 years old and, and, um, uh, and very interested in that book cover. But I, I ended up, some of my first computer programs actually were intended to simulate that book cover. And one thing that happened, which is kind of one of those ironies of science, is that I, um, uh, I ended up, you know, I couldn't simulate all the high precision numbers and things that you need to simulate um, uh, kind of uh, spheres bouncing, bouncing around. So I simplified it all to just integers and discrete positions and so on. And I ended up with the cellular automaton. This was probably in 1973. And I ran the cellular automaton and didn't do anything interesting. So, okay, ignored it. Had I not made one particular very specific assumption, my cellular automaton would have done lots of interesting things. And, uh, Possibly. I don't think I was ready to discover all the various things that are in the NKS book at that time, but I would at least have had a computer experiment that I could have gone back and said, oh, I missed it in that computer experiment. As it was my computer experiment, I don't think. I think it was. It had one extra feature that made the thing behave in a very simple way and not show second law of thermodynamics behavior. But um, I, I ended up working in particle physics, which was sort of at that time the most... Uh, uh, most kind of happening area of, of uh, a basic science and what seemed like the most fundamental one. But but I then, you know, I kept on being interested in this kind of how does complex behavior arise in um, uh, um, in in different systems and so on. And uh, uh, I kind of got back to, after doing a bunch of particle physics and cosmology and so on, I got back to questions about, you know, how do snowflakes end up with the shapes they do? How do turbulent fluids work and so on? That was the beginning of the 1980s. Um, but uh, an important thing that happened in my life was that from 1979 to 1981, I worked on a sort of precursor of Mathematica and Wolfram language, uh, a system called SMP, 
that was um, I called it symbolic manipulation program, and um, it uh, it pioneered a bunch of the ideas that are now um, I'm which I'm sort of sort of um, uh, I kind of got those ideas partly from studying things like mathematical logic and so on, and I'm actually. I'm glad I didn't understand more than I did back then, because if I'd understood more, I would have been confused by all the different rabbit holes that one could have gone down. And as it was, I, I managed to keep without falling down the rabbit holes, so to speak, and actually build a system. Um, but uh, uh, back in 1981, I had just finished sort of the first version of SMP. And one of the things that that had given me experience in is something very different from natural science. You know, in natural science, you're given the world and you're told drill down and figure out how the world works. When you build a software system, a language, computational language, whatever, what you're, what you're doing instead is to say, well, you can drill down a bit and make these primitives, but then most of the story is what you build up from those primitives to be able to do in the world. So you're just sort of making up those primitives to be primitives that are, in the end, useful to humans and so on, and things that computers can deal with. But you're sort of making up those primitives and then seeing what the consequences are, as opposed to the traditional natural science approach of you're just given, you're given the answer. Now you're asked, how did you get to that answer, so to speak? So that led me to, a, as I realized later, to a somewhat different kind of um, conceptual framework for thinking about making models in science. And that's what kind of led me to start thinking about, well, what if I just take these simple programs? What if I do computer experiments and run these and see what happens? And then what happened was, this is 1981 or two. Um, I run these things, and uh, uh, I get these pictures. These are, you know, originally the line printer pictures printed out with with stars and spaces and so on. Um, uh, it took a couple more years before there were nice high resolution bitmap displays and so on um, that I was using. But uh, the big surprise was I thought these simple programs that I had, which were just like one line of C code or whatever, would um, uh, would be would just generate very simple behavior, but they didn't, and that was and, and at the beginning I was like, there has to be a way. You know, they look complicated, but they can't really be complicated. There must be some some hidden uh, kind of uh, regularity here, which I'm not seeing, and that was sort of a big effort for several years on my part to um, uh, to to realize eventually to start coming to terms with this idea that. From simple programs, you can get very complex behavior, and that's just the way everything works. And it just wasn't, that was not obvious to me. I, and I, I, I fought it for quite a while because I thought that there, there was, my intuition was so strong that, you know, if you want to make something complicated, you have to go to a lot of trouble and not just complexity just spews out from, from simple rules. That just wasn't the thing that, um, uh, that I, I uh, had realized. Um, anyway, I, I, um, I ended up um, uh, working on that for, for a number of years, and um, I kind of my plan A was persuade the world that this was a great field of science, this is mid-1980s, and, um, uh, and sort of get lots of help and, um, and have, a, have a, a sort of scientific army uh, move forward in this direction. Um, that was hard to get started, maybe because... Uh, it's just the world makes that hard. Maybe, I, maybe I'm a, uh, uh, you know, maybe that's not my leading. Such an army is not my forte. I don't know. Um, but uh, in any case, I, I I started some pieces of that, and then kind of basically said, look, you know, 
I find the science really interesting. Let me build the best tools and the best environment for me to just do this science myself. And so that's what led me to build Mathematica and now Wolfram Language um, back in 1986 um, and to start our company, Wolfram Research, um, which has been my kind of uh, uh, home for the last 35 years um, and has allowed me to have to take a, uh, in, 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 in most of the sort of institutional areas of science, it's kind of like that, you know, there's a big structure and incremental progress is what's expected and anything other than incremental progress is really quite alien. And I think it, I've been fortunate that I've had this kind of structure where it's been possible to do things which are not necessarily just incremental progress. Um, and uh, anyway, I, I talk about here, uh, by 1991, I, I basically, we built first versions of Mathematica, things have been quite successful. Um, and uh, I decided I will go off for like six months, maybe a year, and um, uh, sort of um, take um, uh, uh, take kind of um, take the time to sort of work out the consequences of these things that I'd done in the in the 1980s and and write a book about those. Well, the big mistake was the big problem was that I just ended up, you know, given Wolfram language. Mathematica back in, in 1991, I just was able to discover all kinds of stuff. And I discovered all kinds of things. And I started exploring the computational universe and discovered there were all kinds of interesting things there. And then I started looking at, okay, so what are the consequences of this for biology, for physics, for mathematics, and so on? And it's like, oh my gosh, there's all this stuff to discover. Well, it took kind of 10 and a half years to work through all that stuff to discover. It's a very difficult, I mean, I, I have to say that the project that I did, and maybe I'll show another time some of the kind of earlier tables of contents for the book, but the table of contents for the book didn't change much over that period of 10 years. What happened was that um, uh, it was, um, um, it was uh, um, the, the, what happened was pretty much I've got these 12 chapters. This is my homework for the next, as it turned out, decade. Um, now go work out, um, work out all of these things. So let me let me just as as um, uh, to uh, um, just want to show one more thing here. Um, there are probably a bunch of notes here about um, uh, um, well, these are let's see. All notes for this section. Ah, okay. Um, so uh, I talked in a little bit more detail about um, about some of this. Um, oh, I see. Okay. Um, about uh, some of how I actually worked out these kinds of things. Maybe I can. Um, I'm happy to kind of um, uh, take questions. Maybe I can just briefly point to. The uh, something I said I might cover, which is the preface to the book, um, and uh, you know I started off talking about just over twenty years ago. That's twenty years ago. From now, I made what seemed like a small discovery, which was uh, these discoveries about simple programs and so on. Um, and I kind of explained in the preface what my idea was in writing this book. Um, and you know, I talked about the fact that before I'd sort of done what I'd done before as a scientist and just published papers in the scientific literature, um, and that went very well, actually. I mean, it was very successful. But what I realized is if you want to 
have if you have a big thing to talk about, you can't scatter it over 500 papers. People will never understand it. It's absolutely, it's an incredibly kind of user-hostile approach to uh, to presenting things. And, and I decided I would sign up for something that was in a sense very difficult, which is take these ideas and if, if they were as fundamental as I thought they were, it should be possible to explain them, not just to specialists, but to anybody who's prepared to take the time to, to understand what was going on. And so it, one of my goals in, in the NKS book was to write it in such a way that it was accessible to a wide range of people. And it's, um, uh, I, I talk about the fact in modern times it's almost unheard of for genuinely new science to be presented for the first time in a book that can be read by non-scientists. And I think I was very well aware of the fact that um, uh, it's, um, uh, you know, it was more difficult for me to do that than to use technical formalism. Um, but I'm sort of proud of the fact that I managed to do it. Unfortunately, however, I say this will no doubt mean that there are some, particularly from the existing sciences, who will at first assume that their existing technical knowledge must somehow already cover what is in the book. And a few, I fear, will stop at that point and choose to learn no more, et cetera. So, um, and of course that happened to some extent, although I have to say that I, in, in um, you know, 20 years of hindsight, I'm extremely glad that I went to the trouble to uh, to write this book in a way that was accessible to people. I, you know, of all the the huge number of people who've who've uh, told me that that um, the book was important in their understanding of things and so on, um, that none of that would have happened um, had I written it in kind of some elaborate technical formalism with all kinds of elaborate you know uh, notation and so on. And um, so I think it's it's some. Um, uh, that was sort of a big success. So that was that was written January fifteenth. I've I've um, I I talk about at the end here that um, uh, you know um, the uh, um, in the end most of what now seems surprising and remarkable in the book will come to seem familiar and commonplace. There is a generation of scientists for whom that is beginning to be the case, for whom things like computational irreducibility are just the way things have to be, as, as it finally seems to me after all these years. Let's see, how has the last sentence held up, the last sentence of what I, I'm starting to look at questions and comments here, um, and I'd, I'd love to look at those some more. Um, this last sentence. Now I've finished building the intellectual structure that I described in this book, it is my hope that those who read these words can share in the excitement I've had in making the discoveries that were involved. Yeah, I think, I mean, I, you know, that's, you know, another decision that I made in writing this book was to make it somewhat personal. The science is not personal at all, but I did talk a little bit about how the discoveries were made, a little bit about my kind of, uh, uh, sort of my, my, in a sense, conceptual um, reaction to those discoveries, rather than just, this is true, this is true, this is true. It's like, this is why I care about this. And I think that was, I think that's important. I mean, I, 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 I had a bunch of notes. Some of these get pretty nerdy, actually. I was looking at these earlier. And I, I have to say, um, this is a really nerdy one. I mean, this must have been a consequence of my, my editing staff uh, and me, me explaining um, 
that uh, in writing the book, I had to adopt some rhetorical devices. Perhaps most annoying to those with a copy editing orientation will be my predilection for starting sentences with conjunctions, something which I have not changed. But the main reason I've done this is to break up what would otherwise be extremely long sentences. I admit that it's kind of nerdy to, to have actually put this in the book. Um, but I was I was avoiding the kind of Kantian page long sentence phenomenon, even though the 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 ideas are often you know build up over the course of a long sentence. And I think um, oh boy, this is this is nerdiness perhaps to the extreme. But twenty years ago, this seemed more significant. When I say billion, I mean ten to the nine, and not um, not ten to the twelve, which was the the earlier British usage. Um, I think um, I had a. Think about clarity and modesty. I mean, I, I've, uh, uh, you know, basically saying, look, I'm just going to say what I think is true. I'm not going to kind of say, well, you know, maybe this is true and maybe it's important and I don't really know. I'm just going to say, if I think it's important, I'm just going to come out and say, I think it's important. And to me, that was a, uh, you know, probably ruffled feathers. But to me, that was something I thought was important because I knew when I explained this stuff to people that people would, if you told them this is something big and new and it's going to be hard to understand, they're kind of ready for that. If you say, oh, well, I just kind of figured out this little thing, they're like, oh, it must be related to this, it must be related to that, it must be related to that. And they're pretty soon they're totally confused. So in a sense, one is the question is, does one support the individual, namely me, or does one support the ideas? If one's supporting me, it's much better, you know, much better personal reactions. If you say, oh, shucks, I, you know, maybe this is interesting, maybe it's not, whatever. But the ideas do not, do not, uh, you know, the, it's not good for the ideas. The ideas are much better served by just saying, look, this idea is important. And it's, uh, you know, the, the creator of the idea can say that, other people can say that, but somebody's got to say it, otherwise people just don't understand what's going on. I would say that I had another charming uh, note here about technology references. In an effort to make the main text of this book as timeless as possible, I've generally avoided referring to everyday systems whose character or name I expect will change as technology advances. You know, reading Alan Turing's works, he talks a bunch about Brunsvigers, which one might not know what they are. They were that was a brand of of uh, a mechanical calculator that was common at the time, and so I I've kind of uh, I avoided talking about that. Although I did notice that um, there is one place I talk about personal digital assistants, um, which uh, uh, didn't survive in in that in in, in those terms. Um, let's see. Well, there are, there are lots of lots of funky things that are very nerdy in the in the in the notes for the preface. I, I think by the time one has notes for a preface, one knows one's going nerdy. And there are things like um, uh, that there's some, well, I talk about the historical notes, which I really put a lot of trouble into. Um, I talk about, uh, uh, well, all sorts of things, which perhaps are interesting to see now, but maybe I'll talk about them if, um, if we have time about um, sort of my comments about how the science would develop and uh, sort of the, the the relationship to education and so on. Um, but uh, maybe we can um, turn this over to um, um, to people's comments, questions, et cetera. Let's go back to that. All right. As a question here, John says some um, uh, commenting that um, uh, maybe like in the Hitchhiker's Guide, the the, you know, the earth is a giant computer. 
yeah, I think that's kind of true. And um, the challenge is to to understand. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, is is uh, yes, in, in not in quite such literal terms, but um, uh, yes, I think that what we have learnt, and particularly so in the last couple of years, kind of building another twenty years on top of of what was in NKS, is kind of this notion that it really is computation all the way down. So very, I mean, I think it's an important thing. Um, okay, Eric asks, after 20 years of development, 20 years of reflection, is there something you would fine tune in the new edition? You know, I was reading the first chapter. I hadn't read the, I, I you know, I look at the NKS book regularly because I'm using all kinds of stuff that was, that I figured out, particularly in the notes, which are just incredibly rich uh, source of, of just all sorts of material and results and so on. And it, it's kind of, it's kind of crazy because a lot of times in the notes, I'll just sort of say, and there's the following thing. And it's like, okay, it's just stated in the notes. And because I avoided having notes to the notes, there isn't a lot of detail on where that came from. But I know, because I can go back and look at the original notebooks, which eventually we'll all put online, um, that that was a lot of work. You know, that was weeks of, of computer time and lots of programs and so on. It's just stated, and the result is this. And so it's a very rich source of um, uh, sort of high-density material in the notes of the NKS book. And, and those are perhaps the things that I look at the most on an ongoing basis. I've tended not to read so much the words because I figure I kind of know what the words say in, in the book. And I was I was looking at the, at the introduction, and I, I would say that, well, my writing style has become a little bit more informal in the last 20 years. Um, and I think that there are probably ways that, uh, you know, if I was writing it today, I probably would have been a little bit more on the or shucks direction. But that's in the in the with the wisdom of hindsight, because, you know, at the time you kind of just have to, you know, bash people over the head with the fact that, yes, this is something new and different. Now, 20 years later, it's like, well, yes, it was new and different because we can see it was new and different 20 years later. So it becomes a little easier to do that um, with the wisdom of hindsight. I think that the the actual description of what the book was trying to do was really quite good. I mean, it, it was, uh, and there's a little bit of terminology like this idea of computational universe and so on, which I didn't have at that time, but I think it was not, um, uh, that that didn't really change the exposition a lot. I mean, I, I'm reminded I, I was, um, you know, uh, you know, if you look at the first edition of Origin of Species, Charles Darwin's Origin of Species, it's got all kinds of, you know, energetic things to say. By the time you get to the third edition, there's all kinds of stuff about, and responding to Professor so-and-so, we say blah, 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 blah. And in a sense, the third edition is worse than the first edition. And I kind of knew this. I, I knew that precedent. And I never intended to write another edition of the NKS book. I intended this to be, this is it. This is the thing. This is what I have to say. Um, now, I have to say that that in modern times, I've taken the point of view that I will write things, and the main thing is just to get them written. And that, that you know, I may move on, I may, I may come back, and I may do more things in that area um, or not. But, uh, you know, the, the, it, it was a big personal effort to spend a decade sort of as a hermit producing this one, one piece of work. And it's a, a lot easier. I mean, I've taken the point of view. Now I've, I've gone total anti-hermit. And we're sort of live streaming most of our working sessions. You can find even the, the uh, uh, perhaps it's excruciating. I haven't tried watching it. The, you know, I've been uh, kind of recording 
sort of pretty much all the time I spend, even on my own, working on writing things, figuring things out, and so on. And it's all on the web. Um, it's all you can find all of it, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours of it. Um, and um, I think that's, uh, in a sense, that's sort of a, a, a dividend of modern times that it's possible to do that and that, you know, live streaming and so on is a thing, social media is a thing. Um, and that's something that I didn't have in the 1990s. Um, you know, the web was new. And, uh, you know, I, I was, uh, when I worked on the NKS book, I had um, in my office that had, was covered with piles of paper and it was kind of very exciting towards the end of the book the piles of paper gradually started disappearing as that section is finished, I can put those papers away, that section is finished, I can put them away, and so on. And um, that was, uh, uh, but, you know, and, and a lot of the work that I'd done in particularly the early 90s of tracking down a lot of very obscure information would have been much easier if I'd, if I'd had 20 years to wait um, and been able to use the web and so on. Although I have to say, I don't think there's not a lot where I say, oh my gosh, I missed that, now you can find it on the web. And I missed it at the time. I, I dug fairly deep, particularly in the historical areas of things. And I think there's there's very little that I that I didn't get to that was within the scope of what I was trying to do. Um, I think uh, uh, well, the one thing that we are going to do in the in the new version, um, in the new online version, is click to copy. Uh, every picture has code behind it. I should have put the code. I mean, I had all the code. As I say, it was a little bit hairier than it might have been because because one of the things I did in writing the book, you know, I did the layout for the book as I was writing the book. And so, if you look carefully, and I even mentioned that in the notes to the preface, if you look carefully, most books, you know, number the figures, number the pictures, and they say see figure thirty-five. I never did that. I always said see the picture on the facing page, see the picture below, and so on. That might seem trivial. I kind of thought it was it was cleaner to be to do it that way, but boy, was that difficult to do because that meant you had to resize pictures, you had to make sure the text fit, you had to rewrite the text sometimes to get it to fit. It felt like felt like creating a newspaper or something. But in any case, and the the kind of the almost the joke of it was that there were sections where I literally uh, wanted to fill out a page, and I thought I've got to generate another picture to fill out this page. And the picture I ended up generating ended up being a pretty interesting piece of science. And there are several of those that that uh, that happened in the book. So it was a book that was, you know, the page layout. I did the page layout while I was writing the book, and uh, you know, it was done with 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 great care. And um, I think uh, it makes it, um, uh, you know, it's a it's a different time now where where this idea of things in pages doesn't doesn't uh, hold so much. Uh, 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 weight, but um, that was um, uh, that was something. I, I think, um, um, yeah, that, that's. The, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm. You know, looking back on the book, I'm, I'm actually. Um, I think that one of the things I spent a lot of effort on was, uh, I would say, the diagrams, making the diagrams as clear as possible, uh, and I wanted the diagrams to be readable without even reading the main text. So you can kind of uh, just look at the diagram and its caption and understand what's going on. I think that worked really well. Um, I think that the um, uh, I had a lot of kind of I found it very interesting doing the historical notes, and that was something I put a lot of effort into. The other thing I put a ridiculous amount of effort into was trying to clean the ideas to the point where I could whittle down the ideas so I could really explain it in a couple of sentences. And I would say that um, 
uh, the effort to learn to do that. And I suppose it's been a, a thing that I've been interested in throughout my life is, is kind of, you know, getting ideas down to their essence. And I suppose that that comes with the, the okay, I want to find a fundamental theory of physics um, instinct too. But, um, and it comes with the, I'm going to design a computational language instinct. But I would say the NKS book was a, was a major effort in doing that, that I'm pretty satisfied with. And when I look back at, at the things that I'd managed to clean, as in, you know, take these ideas that started off pretty complicated things with a lot of kind of technical formalism and so on. And yes, that was pretty clean. I think I've gotten better at uh, explaining ideas and cleaning them. The NKS book was kind of a big training exercise in some ways, although it was a training exercise that came after previous ones like the, the first Mathematica book and things like this. But it was um, that that was uh, something that um, I, I'm I'm fairly happy. I, I you know most of those things I look back on them. I, I don't say oh that was a messy explanation. There's a better one now. No, I actually that was a usually pretty good, pretty minimal explanations. Um, Danny is asking: Is there a formal notation system for the Rouliad? How are simple programs represented? Well, you have to have kind of a a representation language. You know, as a practical matter. Wolfram language is what what and, and it's kind of idea of symbolic transformations for patterns. That's that's a really good way to represent a lot of these things. But in the end, you could be using Turing machines, cellular automata, you know, network rewriting systems, all kinds of different things. These are all coordinate systems in a sense to to sort of describe these pieces of the Rouliad that represents the kind of entangled limit of all possible computations. Each one is a is a is kind of a, a coordinate system, a reference frame for, for describing these things. Kovas, hello Kovas, Bogota is asking, can you speak to transitioning the title of the book from its original title? That's a that's a good question. That's that's a good one. So the original title for this book was A Science of Complexity. That's what I called it in the early 90s when I was starting to write it. At the time, the my original focus had been understand this thing that is complexity. And I kind of realized, and I would say that perhaps if you ask how has the things transitioned since then, perhaps even more strongly than um, uh, this idea of computation as sort of the key anchor concept. I certainly very much understood that in writing the NKS book. I would say that the that the the kind of the the wording, the description of of um uh is is computation has become for me at least a more central descriptive term than it was in the time of nks but in the early days of nks my my early concept was that this was the the title of the book was a science of complexity one of the things that happened with that title had two problems one is i don't think it really it didn't really live up to quite to that because in a sense, science is at odds with complexity. In a sense, science, complexity, and eventually computational irreducibility is the story of limitations of science in some ways. It's also the story of a big leg up for some new kinds, new new kinds of science, so to speak. But it's a, it's, it's, um, and so in a sense, it's sort of a, a, um, uh, that was one thing. There was another very practical thing. You know, hermit as I was, I would occasionally talk to people and I would say, oh, I'm writing this book. It's called A, a Science of Complexity. What everybody said after I said that was, oh, that sounds very complicated. That was always the response. And so I'm like, this is just not going to work because people are just going to say, it sounds very complicated. I'm not going to read it. Even if it tries to explain things in a simple way, it sounds by its title, it sounds like it's full of complexity in its explanation. 
Whereas the whole point is this is about simplicity and its consequences, which happen to include complexity. So that led me to make the change to calling it a new kind of science. I think the original, I, I wrote a book blurb for, um, uh, sort of this was probably early to mid nineties. I wrote a, a proto book blurb um, for some publisher. I ended up not using them in the end, but, but um, uh, the, um, that's a whole story in its own right, but but um, the uh, 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 you know I wrote a book blurb and the book blurb kept on talking about a new kind of science, and it's like hey wait a minute why don't I just use that for the title of the book, and when I did that, and I would mention oh I'm writing this book it's called a new kind of science, people would say oh what's new about it much better question than just the statement that sounds very complicated I'm out of here, so that was that was encouraging. I would say that one of the things that I was trying to do in the book title was there's sort of a tradition of the, you know, scientist writes popular book. And the, you know, some of these popular books, by virtue of their marketing, by virtue of their content, are, uh, you know, they, they say things that scientists don't say in their technical publications. Sometimes scientists, you know, it's, it's one of the things I've learned as you try and learn lots of different fields Often, you know, there'll be some, some very distinguished scientists in some field who write an elementary textbook. And in the introduction to that elementary textbook, they'll say some very crisp things about the kind of overall conceptual framework of the field, but they never say them anywhere else. In a technical paper, they never say them because it's kind of like, no, 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 this is a technical paper here. We don't want to talk about these elementary things. But if they write a textbook, even if much of the textbook is quite technical, the introduction will have things that are really getting at the essence of what's going on. And I think that that the, the sort of the tradition, particularly around 20 years ago and, and 30 years ago, when I was sort of starting out writing the NKS book, there was kind of this, this whole kind of idea of the kind of the, the popular science book that maybe had a few extra things that it was saying that kind of made it useful from a research point of view. My my kind of idea had always been, this is all gonna be about new stuff and or stuff that maybe I had done in the 1980s and was kind of uh, sort of packaging together, but it was going to be about sort of a conceptual framework that was really pretty much new to this book. And so it was sort of a tension because on the one side were the popular science books and we kind of did these surveys because I was interested, I'm a you know, practical guy. So I actually got some surveys done in bookstores back in the early nineties of why were people buying popular science books? Um, the main discovery was because they might in another time have bought philosophy books, but the philosophy books were all pretty hard to understand and the science books were interesting. But in any case, the, the, um, uh, the thing, so, you know, on one side, it was like, there's this thing of, you know, if you write about science clearly enough, there's a whole bunch of people who are interested in it and who will do things on the basis of it. On the other side, though, is the, there's the very technical communication of technical ideas that traditionally has been done very incrementally in things like academic journals. And I was trying to, 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 to sort of walk this middle path between those two things. And so the title was sort of an attempt to do that. And I, I didn't want to have something too kind of, I didn't want to have something whimsical. I didn't want to have something, I, I thought for a long, long, long time about, can I come up with a word, you know, a cybernetics-like word, but it's a huge risk to come up with a word. I think now this term ruleology that we're just starting to use now, 
um, I figure that uh, uh, nothing to lose, and I like the word anyway. Um, and um, that, um, uh, but but it, it, ruleology is a much more whimsical. I mean, it's kind of the the study of simple programs for their own sake, which I view as being a very definite thing. It's not the whole story of this new kind of science. It's it's a story of one of its underpinnings, an important underpinning, an important methodology, but it's not the whole story. And um, so that that's some. Uh, I think I might even have some pictures of um, the, uh, let's see, I really should, for another one of these live streams, I think I should um, uh, uh, get out some of the earlier drafts. I, I've been looking at different times because I'm trying to figure out when did I actually figure out about like multi-way systems, which have become a big thing in our physics project. And I, you know, I just have a shelf full of these different drafts. So let me see if I can find this here for one second. Um, mm -hmm. um, Let's see, I'd perhaps talk about some, uh, yeah, there are so many stories actually from the from the creation of the NKS book, which I should be one day told. I, I think that the, um, um, let's see, let me just share something here. Um, just from my scrapbook, uh, there's, a, there's a page of leaves in the NKS book and, um, uh, yeah, that was that was me taking a picture of what turned out to be a very big leaf that was. Um, um, but those were some of the earlier kind of. I guess this was all post the. Oh no, there we go. There's a science of complexity. Yeah, that was another early title, complexity and computation in nature. That was a very short-lived title. Um, but I'm afraid these were some of the. These were some of the reasons I didn't use an outside publisher because these were that was their their finest production of a of a of a cover which I'm, I'm happy was not the one that actually happened. These were from our design department and the final one was from, um, uh, from our um, uh, folks um, in, um, uh, who do um, uh, graphic design at our company. Um, and uh, let's see, what else is there here? There's a, there's, there's a lot of fun stuff with um, uh, to do with the actual printing of the book. Maybe I'll talk about that another time. Um, that was a, a huge challenge because these are high resolution pictures that were really pushing the envelope of technology to actually have a, a bitmap that was at that resolution and even found a, a bug in postscript that had been there for 10 years that was found over a holiday weekend as these pages were actually getting printed. That is an interesting story in its own right. Um, but uh, let's see, other, other questions, comments here. Um, Okay, so Maury asks, why is mathematics so effective for natural science? Um, and uh, the, okay, so I think the answer is, it depends what you're studying in natural science. If what you choose to study and call physics is those things that can be studied using the methods of mathematics, then it is a self-fulfilling prophecy that mathematics will be successful. And if you look at the history of physics, that's a lot of what's happened. For example, turbulence in fluids, good example. Smooth flow of fluids, study it with mathematics, it's all good. Turbulent fluid flow, it's really complicated. Mathematics doesn't tell you very much about it. It's been a big challenge to get mathematics to say anything much at all about it. But for a long time, that was something which, oh, it's not really physics. Maybe it's engineering. We just have to deal with it in practice. It's not something that we can have a theory about. So in that sense, 
mathematics, uh, physics is sort of concentrated on those things which are mathematicizable. Now, I have to say my current point of view is even a bit more extreme than that. It's to say that, that in this Rouliad, this, this sort of entangled limit of all possible computations, there's a lot of wild stuff going on. But we as human observers with bounded, uh, where we have sort of bounded computational abilities, we have this idea that we're persistent through time, even though our underlying structure may be continually updating itself. We have this idea that we persist through time. Those two things are enough to constrain those as which aspects of this Rouliad of all, all possible computations we actually observe. And that slice that we are capable of observing is a particular slice. And that particular slice has more characteristics that are like mathematics than that are like the things we've talked about as mathematics than perhaps I had realized before. And sort of the big thing that comes about is the realization that our mathematics is also based on this Rouliad idea. And the mathematics that we have is also based on kind of our ability to observe the Rouliad. Our physics is based on our ability to observe the Rouliad. Our mathematics is based on our ability to observe the Rouliad. But it's the same us that's doing the observation in the two cases. And so that means that there are constraints that are associated with our particular uh, characteristics, like computational boundedness, like this notion of persistence through time, that apply themselves both in physics and in mathematics. And I've, I've only really recently realized this. And it's a, it's a very deeply platonic thought in the sense that it really is that there is this, you know, this universe of ideal forms, it's kind of the, the Rouliad, and we are seeing these particular slices that are very human slices. You know, the aliens might see completely different slices, but yes, that's, the, that's kind of the, the thing. And, and in a sense, the, the effectiveness at some level, the effectiveness of mathematics and the fact that mathematics, well, a recent realization is the fact that mathematics and physics have the same foundation. And you know, there are things like, for example, if you believe that you are persistent in time, that is, you believe that you now is the same as you a second ago. Well, in our theories of physics now, the atoms of space that make up me now are completely new atoms of space than the ones that made me up 10 to the minus 90 seconds ago. Um, they're, they're, you know, they're completely re- they're, they're reprocessed, just like, you know, you have a, a vortex moving through a fluid the actual molecules that make it up will be completely different molecules, but yet the vortex moves on. And it's the same thing with us kind of existing in the physical universe. And But yet, if we have the idea that we have a, a consistent, persistent existence between this moment in time and the next moment in time, in a sense, that immediately tells one that there is a, a, a conception of continuity. There's a conception of, of the continuum, because that moment in time, it's not like I'm here for this moment in time, then oh, I'm nowhere, I'm nowhere, and then I'm back for the next moment in time. It's rather, there's this concept that I am consistently there through these moments in time, and that leads one immediately to something, a perception of the continuum, even if there isn't a, a continuum in some sense really there. Nikolai asks, do I think that the widely recognized term theory of everything overlaps with, with uh, my ideas? Um, I don't know. I don't really think about that term. I don't like it much at all. And I, I, it's, it's almost, I mean, it, it's, it's said, I think almost, uh, uh, I haven't really thought about that actually. I mean, I, I suppose the things that I'm talking about are as close to a, a quotes theory of everything as you're likely to ever find. Um, but 
I I would uh, tend to avoid that term for it because I think it's been a a um, it's a it's a term almost said in mockery um, for many kinds of theories. But I, I suppose we're we're yes we're, we're probably signing up for for that in some sense, although it is some. Um, uh, um, I think as you take apart that term, a theory of everything, it's not obvious there would be a theory of everything. It's, you know, everything is a lot of things. And a theory might suggest that it is something where we are capable of human statements about it. That is, in fact, in fact, I would say, okay, I'm going to take apart that term. Okay. The problem with that term is that the very notion of a, a theory is is this, you know, what is a theory? And a theory is presumably something that is a, a, a thing that bridges between what we humans can think about and the way a system actually works. And in some sense, I think it's almost sort of a mockery of that idea to say that everything has a theory in that sense. In fact, the very notion of things like computational irreducibility is a whole story of things for which there cannot be a sort of a, a, a short human narrative for what's going on. So I, I sort of, I'm not a, I'm not a big fan of that term, of that term. But perhaps um, more for the, for uh, you know, maybe, maybe it, I haven't really thought about it. Actually, it's interesting that I haven't. Um, this question from RBS: What mathematical fields should one know and study to to look at specific things like uh, cellular automaton rules and their behavior? Um, Let's talk about that another time. I think that the um, uh, the first step is this kind of whole idea of ruleology and this whole idea of doing computer experiments and understanding their consequences and kind of doing clean experiments. There are mathematical methods like dynamical systems theory, statistical mechanics, discrete mathematics. These are all things which, for example, I've used at different times to analyze certain aspects of that, that kind of behavior. But I would say that there's a, a collection of methods that have emerged that are, many of them were in the NKS book. Most of them were in the NKS book, actually, that are sort of the raw material methods of ruleology that are, I think, the powerful things to use for those purposes. Um, okay, Richard asks, Richard Hacker asks, can you think of any particular criticisms of the book that have been demolished in the interceding years? You know, one of the things I haven't done is read all the reviews of the book. And I was kind of thinking of doing that in, in celebration of the 20th anniversary. You know, I'm, I'm a person who I, I kind of just do what I do. And it's I'm more interested in the doing of it than I am in the in the kind of uh, uh, the kind of the the um, uh, the feedback on it. Um, I mean, I love seeing other people build on what I've done. I think that's wonderful, and and it's it's very very terrific thing to see. And I, it's also nice to hear that people uh, found what I had to say interesting. But um, uh, I would say that the um, uh, the kind of um, the oh, this is terrible because um, is uh, uh, I'm 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 less. If I was always concerned about those things, very hard to do new innovative stuff. If you're always kind of looking over your shoulder, is somebody, you know, is somebody coming and attacking you? And in, in, um, uh, and I've I've tended personally not not really to do that. I would say that, um, uh, you know, the the thing that is kind of most ironic in some sense is that the I would say beyond the very basic, oh, you know. Uh, in in if you're a cynical academic or something, you would say, you know, everybody always says about things either it's wrong or it's been done before, or it's both wrong and it's been done before. So one of the things when people would say, 
the NKS book is wrong. It's like, what does that even mean? You know, these are, you just take a program and you run it and it makes this picture. What do you mean? It's like saying, you know, two is green or something. It's a, it's a, it's a mistake of, of, uh, of categories, so to speak. It's not a kind of thing that you could say it's wrong. You could say its implications are incorrect. You could say something like that. But to say that its content is, quotes wrong, is just, you know, doesn't make any sense. Because unlike most science, where you could say, you know, you made this conclusion from some, you know, you did this experiment and you did the experiment wrong, that's not a thing. In, in computer experiments, you just run the experiment and it does what it does. And, you know, you can, any computer, any time you can run it, it'll do what it does. So that was that was kind of a, a, a thing. The, the other thing is, you know, it's wrong. It's been done before. You know, one of the things that I did, and I think I was kind of, I have to say, if there was one thing that sort of annoyed me about um, people's responses to the NKS book was people complaining that, oh, you didn't, you know, give uh, appropriate sort of recognition of the history. Really? Look at the history notes in the back of the book. I did more careful history than, you know, people doing research uh, work in academia basically ever do, unless they're historians. Um, and, uh, and, and I have to say that many people, where I said that to them, they said, well, I, I did look at the note. And actually, well, yes, those notes are really quite good. Um, so, but I think that the, um, there was sort of a, a um, uh, and so, you know, I think I really did know and do know in considerable detail, you know, what was new, what was not new, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I think that the thing that was interesting in terms of the response to the book as I look at it from 20 years later, and I, I was just realizing this in connection with our physics project, almost all of the kind of pitchforking came from people who were physicists. And there was a lot of, lot of very positive response from a lot of places, including in physics, but particularly outside of physics. I think it was almost uniformly positive response outside of physics. And that was really odd because I'd been a physicist who was kind of well-known in that field. And I knew many of these people. And it's like, you know, I, I would say the physicists and to some extent, the early complexity people, there was another, was another crowd who were particularly ironic because I, I think I, uh, you know, got many of them into the field. And then I sort of came back, you know, 15 years later. And um, uh, I, I hadn't really realized that returning to a field that you have left is, um, is such a shocking thing to do. But anyway, the the um the thing that um was uh, uh from the physicists the kind of the main pitchforking was like it just doesn't look like physics it's like well yes that's why the title of the book is a new kind of science it's not physics you know etc cetera, etc cetera, etc cetera. but i think a, a thing that i just realized actually is two people who were um uh you know i suppose the the um I think I referred to them in, in a piece I wrote about the physics project as Nobel Prize winners with pitchforks. There are two people, Steve Weinberg and Phil Anderson, um, uh, who wrote these kind of attack reviews, which I have to admit I've not read word for word, and I and I will, I think, um, now. But their their main point was, oh, it's not physics, it's never going to be relevant for physics, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The thing that was ironic, which I only just realized, is those two were locked in mortal combat for much of the 90s because Steve Weinberg was pushing for the super colliding particle accelerator. Phil Anderson was saying, don't spend all that money on the particle physicists. Condensed matter physics is the place you should be spending the money. And so it's kind of ironic 
that they both were like attacking a new kind of science. We don't want a new kind of science. In fact, I remember Steve Weinberg telling me explicitly, you know, I hope you don't work on this stuff. Uh, it was after the book came out. Um, you know, I hope you don't work on it because, you know, if you're right, he says, of course you're not right, but if you are right, it's going to demolish the last 50 years of, of work that we've done in physics. And I have to say, I said to him, I really don't think that's going to happen. As it's turned out with our physics project, it not only hasn't happened, it has been something where the synergy between what has been done and what we're doing is just wonderful. It worked out a lot better than I expected. But I would say that this, it's never going to be relevant to physics. Yeah, that, that's, I, I think we can, we can put that in the, in the not, not relevant uh, category and the, in the that was wrong idea. But um, the other thing I suppose was people saying, you know, uh, the, this, this kind of notion that, you know, we've got mathematical equations, there are models for science. And, and many people said that. The only way you make a real model is to use a mathematical equation. Well, you know, in practice, people have voted with their models, so to speak. And new models are mostly made with programs these days, not with equations. And so that, that really, well, I would say did demolish that, although it demolished it in a rather in a sense, a rather quiet way, because just the models have moved in this direction, and that's where the, the sort of the, the thrust of what people do in science has moved. Um, I think somewhat not not with a lot of fanfare, not that visibly, but that's what's happened. Um, so, and I, you know, I kind of knew that was going to happen. That wasn't a big surprise at all. That's why I wrote this whole book that um, you know whose first sentence talks about exactly that phenomenon. But I think it was a surprise to to some other people. Um, I think that the, uh, yeah, so probably the most dramatic thing is uh, the, oh, it's never going to be relevant to physics, that I think we can say was was not a correct assertion. I mean, I wasn't sure, you know, I, I have to say when when I, you know, I, I was really thought there was some interesting things and and definitely had the right direction in terms of thinking about discrete space and so on. But I didn't know how it was all going to come together. And it did require several more layers of ideas um, to, to make more progress on that. Um, so Memes is asking, if someone used tools I've developed and found fundamental theory of physics, would I feel excited, disappointed thoughts? Oh, I mean, I, you know, it'd be great. Um, you know, I think we are, at this point, we have the framework for such a theory. I will be completely amazed if as we nail down, you know, how does physics really work and, you know, what are electrons and all this kind of thing, I'll be amazed if the framework that we have is not, you know, is, is not the right thing. And, and I think that that it's kind of inevitable at this point because the framework we have is clear that sort of a machine code for five other frameworks that people have developed that are pretty much the complete set of, of serious frameworks in mathematical physics. I think, I think sort of we're all right. Um, but we happen to have built a machine code layer that's sort of lower level than the other things that have been done and, and, and somewhat more explicit. So it's easier to see what's what's happening. But I think, you know, as that gets tightened up, um, it will be. And I, and I think the thing that I've realized is, you know, when we tighten it up and we find the electron, we will find the electron as we observers observe the universe, aliens, so to speak, who we would not recognize at all because they're they are incoherently different from us will have a different electron so in a sense we are what we find when we find a fundamental theory of physics is a bridge between the way that we humans are and the way that nature fundamentally is in some sense 
And so that that's kind of the way to understand what we're looking for. And yeah, it, it's I mean, it'll be great. If more progress is made. And I'm, I'm, you know, it's great that there are a lot of people now. You know, we've had a couple of summer schools, a couple of winter schools devoted to our physics project. A lot of people working on things related to it. a lot of people uh, in academic physics and mathematical physics and mathematics working on related things. Um, it's uh, it's really nice to see. And I have to say, it's been um, uh, you know it's it's been interesting that that the kind of uh, the sort of you know there haven't been pitchforks at all. It's been a very positive and synergistic experience, I would say. Um, so you know, in in a from a um, uh, yeah, I'm 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 a big enthusiast. I want somebody else to do it. I'm 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 happy with things I've done. You know, somebody else gets to discover the electron in this in these models. If I have to do it, I'll be a little bit disappointed because um, it, it's uh, it's kind of um, in a sense development of of um, uh, I mean, there are a lot of things that were in the NKS book that were said. I think with very good clarity in the book, I like to believe, where they were like, world, you should just do this. There's things to do here. You know, just go do it. Like the things about physics, for example. It's like, just go do it. I mean, I gave a TED talk, for example, in 2010, which quite a lot of people watched, where I, I somebody pointed this out to me. I sort of said, you know, in a decade, you know, I hope that we'll be able to sort of hold in our hands a theory of physics. And it's like, you know, like million people watch, two million, whatever it was. And, you know, there were a few, you know, there were a couple of young people who did follow up and who I worked with in, on that project. Um, and uh, the, um, uh, but, you know, that was a very attenuated number. And I certainly would have hoped and expected that given the, you know, given the launch pad, so to speak, that there would be more done. But, you know, it's hard to get these things to happen. And I think now, uh, you know, we are planning to launch this ruleological society to help collect the large number of researchers who've done interesting things uh, that many of them building on things I did in the 80s, things that I did in the new kind of science, but it hasn't been sort of collected in a way, in a coherent way. And, and that's something I hope we'll be able to help with. Um, a couple of questions here, a lot of interesting things. Okay, let me try and go through these. Um, Oh, Flamio asks, how did or will NKS influence analog computing? Well, in a sense, you know, our theory of physics kind of says, well, things are computational and digital sort of all the way down. You know, I don't know. I haven't really thought much about analog computing in a long time. I think that um, uh, this question of when, that's actually an interesting question, and it, and it relates to this kind of fourth paradigm for thinking about modeling. Um, and I should think about it, and I don't have a good answer right now. Uh, crypto is asking, who was my greatest influence or source of inspiration? And what's my opinion of Benoit Mandelbrot's work? Well, let's, um, uh, about Benoit, I can say, I, I, I think I knew him decently well. Um, he, uh, I wrote a, a sort of little bit of biograph biographical piece about him. Uh, I, I have to say, I exchanged many letters with him. And um, when he died, I was going to write an obituary, but I, I looked at some of these letters and my I, I, I was 
kind of showing them to my staff and they're like, you cannot write this obituary. These letters are, you know, that he wrote to you are so outrageous that, you know, any obituary you try to write that even has fragments of these is just going to be really horrible. Um, now, having said that, I think Benoit, and I, I've said this, and, you know, Benoit did great science. Um, I would say that he uh, he had some kind of tactical mistakes in the way that he did it. He also, I think, uh, you know, this idea of fractals as the sort of intermediary between uh, the periodic and the sort of much more elaborate and random is a very interesting waypoint. It's an important waypoint. And it's a, you know, it's a surviving waypoint. Now, I know that Benoit felt that um, uh, the things I did in NKS, for example, uh, he, he said uh, to others, if, uh, and in a filtered way to me, I suppose, too, that you know, he thought that in the end, sort of the kinds of things I was doing in NKS would sort of overwhelm the whole fractal story. And that you know, knowing the sort of full things that could happen with computation was going to sort of uh, uh, you know dwarf what was known about sort of nested structures and fractals, and yeah, he was right about that at some level. But that doesn't mean that that fractals aren't a very important uh, contribution to uh, to science and a very sort of singular and, and forceful contribution to science. I think also Benoit, you know. I sort of tracked down, I, I, I had to hound him to get this history in some cases, but um, I, I sort of tracked down, how did he come to make such a uh, sort of visually interesting book, which was in some ways a uh, uh, kind of a, a, an inspiration of a sort for, for some of my work in terms of just the visual presentation of things. Because Benoit's early papers have been about power laws and all there were were plots. And actually his publisher was the one who told him, this these plots just don't cut it. You gotta have something more sort of uh, more arresting, so to speak, to get people to pay attention to this. And, and that's how he ended up at IBM with Dick Voss and other people uh, making all of those all of those nice pictures. Um, but uh, I think, you know, one of the things that I sort of did learn from, a, a, a negative learning from Benoit, was that, you know, he would take the idea of fractals and he would kind of enter various different fields and kind of write papers with people's in the, people in those fields. And I think he you know, he sort of entered, in a sense, the politics of those fields in a way that I think was not in the end positive. Um, and I kind of, I, I haven't done that. I, I haven't written papers with people. Well, I haven't written papers with, I haven't written academic papers since 1986. Um, I, I don't, I, I prefer the style that I'm able to write in, in which I'm, I'm just saying what I think, so to speak, rather than sort of uh, presenting it in this ponderous way that, that um, is, is the tradition and is a convenient tradition in, in academic writing. But in any case, I, I think um, this notion of, uh, you know, sort of going to a field and, and collaborate with the, with the locals, so to speak, um, is, is fraught with difficulty if you're bringing new methodology. And I think it's much better to just provide the methodology and do what you can, and then let people in different parts of that field take the methodology and do what they're going to do with it. But in terms of, of um, my sort of uh, influence, the source of inspiration, you know, in the preface to the NKS book, I list a, a large number of people who uh, I have known over the years um, who... Um, uh, have um, uh, who I've learned a lot from. I, I would say that the, um, uh, uh, in terms of sort of a single, uh, you know, I'm trying to emulate this person. I don't really think I have had that. 
I mean, I'm I'm fairly aware of history, and so I'm fairly aware of you know where important contributions have come from. And I like to understand, you know, how did this manage to become an important contribution? How did people kind of shake off the kind of, oh, I don't know what this is all about, to really understand this is the crisp message, so to speak. Um, how did that really happen? And that's been very useful to see kind of in the in the in from a distance, even for people who, you know, died before I was born and so on. Uh, for people that I've known in person, um, I mean, there are many people who I would say uh, I'm, I'm, um, uh, you know, people who kind of go for the clarity of thought to um, uh, to kind of um, uh, to 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 pull things out. I mean, like a physicist I knew well was uh, was Richard Feynman, who was who was big on that. Although he did this thing that. That is not what I, I suppose I do a version of this, but in a very different way. I mean, he was a very good calculator of mathematical things by hand and so on. He would do these very elaborate mathematical calculations and come up with some conclusion. The amazing thing was that he got the right answer from his mathematical calculations. But then he thought the mathematical calculations were easy to everybody. They weren't. They were really hard. And he was really good at doing them. And so he would kind of throw those away and then he would go back and say, let me understand this intuitively and come up with some very nice elementary explanation. And people would wonder, including me, uh, you know, how did you figure that out? Why did you know that that was how it was going to go rather than the other way? Well, he said, well, I just did all these calculations. And it's like, then I threw those away. But it's like, but but those are, you know, a big, big, big part of the value. And I suppose, in a sense, the, the things that I've done, I suppose I could be accused of the same phenomenon because I, you know, what I tend to do is some kind of mixture of do computer experiments, get intuition from computation, do, in a sense, philosophical level thinking, and try and bring those two things together. And, and in a sense, that's a, and so in the end, it becomes a quite simple argument, although at least in my case, I'm able to show the computer pictures rather than saying, well, there's a bunch of mathematics, but I threw it all away type thing. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I would say that the, um, uh, yeah, no, I, I mean, uh, probably anybody who is in my idea maker's book um, is somebody who, from whom I think I, I, I feel some kind of that I learnt something from kind of the content or style of what they've done. Um, but I haven't had, um, I, I would say I haven't had sort of specific, uh, this is what I want to be like um, kinds of inspirations. I think that the main thing is just the realization that it is possible to clean ideas to the point where they are, where they're really crisp and the value of doing that. And I've seen that in, in just a lot of different examples. Um, I think perhaps in some ways, there's sometimes some sort of negative, um, uh, um, you know, anti-role um, uh, modeling that goes on in, in the sense of people saying, you'll never be able to make that work. And I don't know, I, I, it's, uh, if it has an effect, it's more, yeah, yeah, I'll be able to make it work and, you know, You'll see, and not that not that there's any particular, uh, you know, I, I'm not. Um, I I view that mostly as a sign of yes, I'm actually doing something new and unexpected, um, and that's kind of that's kind of good um, because if it's like everybody says, of course you're going to make that work, of course it's going to work. It's like okay, I don't need to do this. Somebody else can do this. It's sort of more satisfying if you do things where people say that's crazy, that'll never work, and then you manage to make it work, and it's kind of like that's neat. It's it's not kind of I would say for me, in my particular psychology, I mean, it's not, oh, I proved you wrong. I don't care about that. 
It's it's more, and actually it's often interesting to understand why was the person wrong? What was the thing that they didn't get? What was the the sort of the shift you had to make? Because one of the things for me is very interesting is when I see that either sort of firsthand in that way or in history, it's like, how do I avoid making the mistake that person made? You know, how do I avoid not seeing the obvious thing, not seeing what's important about this thing. You know, I have this whole structure. How do I avoid, for, for example, I mean, I could have generated and did, you know, all these pictures of cellular automata and all this kind of thing, which had all kinds of complex behavior. And I could have just said, let me concentrate on this one line that I can pull out of this picture where I can make some mathematical theory about it. That's what I could have done. But the important point was to realize that wasn't the important point of the of what one was seeing. The important point was the complexity and the kinds of phenomena that were associated with that. Um, Nikolai asks, deduction or induction? What's more important in NKS? In what proportions? Very interesting question. I mean, I would say that uh, ruleology is a is a deductive business mostly in the sense you start from rules you see what they do but now when you go back and say what does it mean that's an inductive process and that's sort of the meta modeling idea of you see what happens you go back you try and find well the, the meta modeling is more going from models that have already been constructed but it's an interesting question i mean i think that um uh in the actual nks book there's you know a chunk of it that is pure ruleology, pure, pure NKS of just looking at simple programs and what they do. And then there's another part that's trying to relate that to what does it mean for biology? What does it mean for fluid flow and so on? That is, I suppose, a more inductive kind of uh, kind of act. Um, and uh, when it comes to what it has to say about mathematics, well, that's an interesting story of the sort of relationship between the inductive and deductive views of mathematics. And in fact, my, my recent work in metamathematics kind of, you know, tangles these up even more. Um, but interesting question. Um, Anthony asks, will you ever, will you eventually continue trying to write fiction? Yeah, I, you know, I think I may have mentioned on one of these live streams that I, I made one attempt based on a, a, a piece that I wrote about, um, uh, you know, what kind of beacons could our civilization leave that uh, indicates sort of the, the meaning of things. Um, that I, I tried, I, I spent one evening writing a science fiction-ish story, which uh, I sent to a couple of friends of mine who are fairly well-known science fiction writers. And they said, you know, it's terrible. I don't know, maybe they're not right, I don't know. I, I mean, I, I would say that the thing that is difficult for me is I'm interested in people, you know, I, I um, and I've even written quite a lot about, you know, historical biography and things. Um, for some reason, when I'm writing about making people, you know, make up a person, I, I have a, I have, I have a sort of some kind of block about doing that. I've, I've asked writers I know about that, um, and um, I asked them about why doesn't it make them feel very uh, kind of exposed about how they think about things about actual people they know, and they say, well, yes, it does. And and sometimes they say, and and that's why you know the book that I wrote about my time in country X will never get translated into the language of country X because uh, because I'm too afraid of of what people will recognize in themselves there and so on. But but um, uh, you know I think I, I was trying to write a little piece that is about um, what it's like to be a computer that I suppose one could view as fiction. It's a weird kind of fiction. Uh, as I was trying to understand sort of the notion of consciousness seen from the inside 
and seen from the point of view of a present day computer. And I, I hopefully I'll get to do that in the next uh, month or two. Um, I have to say that, that um, uh, I, in, um, I, you know, sometimes I feel like, you know, one has ideas and how should one express them? And, um, you know, I tend to be very straight. That is, I'm trying to, I try to write it with kind of as, as clearly as I can without, with as, the minimum dressing. And in a sense, sometimes ideas are probably more clearly communicated when they do have a certain amount of dressing and fiction in terms of ideas, at least is, is you know, provides a kind of dressing. I have to say my friend Rudy Rooker has written quite a bit of fiction that has bases in NKS. He actually has a book called um, uh, The Life Box, the, the, what is it called? The um, Seashell, the Snail, the Life Box. I've, I've forgotten, I'm sorry. Um, he wrote it about um, 15 years ago. It's a nice book that is a kind of, it's an exposition of NKS told, among other things, with through some pieces of fiction. Um, and it's like, it's really interesting to me. I mean, uh, you know, I, I was, um, in fact, some things that I was writing about the Ruliad, uh, you know, Rudy Rooker had written an early book called Infinity in the Mind, which was a, a book based on his experience in mathematical logic, um, uh, which was his kind of original academic field. Um, and uh, uh, then he's written some science fiction about uh, transfinite numbers and things like that. I mean, who writes science fiction about transfinite numbers? It's really a kind of a cool thing to do. Um, and I realized as I was writing some stuff about the Ruliad, I realized that, um, uh, and in fact, something that Rudy had recently written, it's like Rudy has actually written fiction about um, uh, things which are these kind of limiting, you know, infinite, infinite objects and so on. Um, and he's also written stuff that, that makes direct use of ideas in NKS. So he's he's and he's probably done a better job than than I'll ever do of those things. So I recommend his his work. Um, let's see. Uh, Sahak asks about um, Max Tegmark's work. I I don't know. I I know Max Tegmark. I haven't seen him in a, a few years. Um, I I I simply don't know. Um, I think. Uh, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll simply say something silly by saying anything. Um, the I, Max claims that he's understood what I've done, but I don't know whether he actually has. Um, so we can, that's at least a, a one-way dependency chain. Um, Wilf asks, will neural nets and AI eventually tell you whether you're right or wrong about computational universe theory? And no, I don't think so. I think that, that this kind of sort of the idea that you can neural nets probably work for us because they're a bit like us. That is, if you want to recognize objects in the world that are things that we recognize in visual objects and so on, it is the case that if you make something that's kind of like the visual system, you know, like our visual cortex, then it's sort of not surprising. It was surprising. It is still surprising, but it's sort of um uh the fact that a thing like that that we can recognize is something it can recognize if if there was a thing that was very different 
from anything that something that we pull out of the world. I mean, there, there are plenty of things that happen in the world where we don't say that's an object. We have a word to describe it and so on. There are plenty of things where there's sort of complicated behavior. We just say that's complicated. I don't know what's going on, as opposed to that's a bird that's flying or something or that's a um, or that's a leaf or something like this. Um, and so I think that some part of that story has to do with the fact that neural nets are a bit like us. Now, another part of the story, there are cases where, I don't know, protein folding, something like this, where it seems like neural nets are doing things that are just pulling things out of nature. But I think there's also a little bit of what features are you trying to get out? What are you trying to get right? They're ones that we care about. There's a certain self-fulfillingness to this, I think. Um, and I think that's, a, and I think in some sense, neural nets may be a good meta model for some of what we as observers do. And that's pretty interesting from the point of view of understanding sort of going backwards and saying, well, what does that imply about what we can deduce about physics and so on? But I don't think in terms of just saying, oh, neural net, you know, tell me if I'm right or not. I don't think that's really the pattern of what's, what's going on. Um, it's a question about what do I think about a book? Um, uh, not only in a dynamics perspective about NKS. You know, this is, it's a terrible thing about uh, that I, you know, if there's something I kind of regret, it's that I don't have the opportunity to read all the things that people do that are based on things I've created. I mean, at some level, part of the point there that, you know, if I can help somebody to go further with something that they've done, then like I've got a reason to see what they've done, and I'm, you know, I'm I'm excited to do that. But it's otherwise I I tend to be, uh, and and you know I I sort of uh, I kind of regret it in some ways. I tend to be more oriented towards if I'm going to have X amount of time to do something, I'm going to use that time to do a new thing rather than to see what has been done with things that I've done before, and and. Uh, uh, you know, it's it's a thing. I, I wish I had more time to do that, and I wish that there was a sort of better mechanism for learning about what people do. Because you know, one of the things you learn this, you know, Wolfram language and Mathematica and Wolfram Alpha, you know, millions of people do all kinds of stuff with it. And you know, sometimes a decade or two later, somebody will come up to me and say, "By the way, did you know that this cool thing that got done, you know, originally was done in some Wolfram language program?" And it's like, okay, that's nice. But the fact is, when you make tools and ideas, you put them out in the world and you don't necessarily get any feedback at all about what's happened with them. You, it's just like, it's kind of like a, a, a um, you know, it's kind of like giving a talk to a, to a completely blackened room, so to speak. You just don't have any idea what's out there. And it's, it's very nice sometimes when one gets back kind of um, uh, sort of feedback. And I suppose one can go looking for feedback. And in fact, as part of the 20th anniversary of the NKS book, we are trying to get of trying to go through and make a bibliography of all the papers that have come out and and so on. And actually, this is a thing for, for anybody here who's who's um, uh, actually written uh, papers and books and things based on on NKS or building on NKS. We're planning to actually link those things as kind of forward links from pages of the online NKS book, sort of forward linking to things that that are sort of new updates, news about things that are on this page or that page. And so we'd really like to get any of that material if we can. Um, 
let's see, question from Carson about the design of the NKS book um, that um, I said that I'd spent a lot of time doing layout and formatting. Did I personally do the layout? What program did I use? Um, uh, the uh, Just wondering, since uh, so few technically sophisticated books are well-designed, where did the aesthetic sense come from? Okay, so the answer is what I used in um, the actual layout program is a program called FrameMaker. Um, had I started it in the mid-1990s, I would have used our Wolf Notebook technology, um, but it wasn't well enough developed by the early 1990s. So I started off using FrameMaker and I kept on using FrameMaker. In the end, we processed the whole book through Wolfram Language and through notebooks and so on. Um, but uh, the actual layout day by day was done in FrameMaker. Now, I think the big thing was the notion of algorithmic diagrams, the notion of a diagram where, which was really made by a computer, which had packed a lot of information in. I mean, people had the idea uh, of, you know, having diagrams where, you know, you would design the diagram and somebody would draw the diagram. Um, you know, I have to say, uh, I personally have been interested in kind of diagrammatic presentation of information. I mean, you can find on the web, I could bring it up, stuff I did when I was like 12 years old and so on of, of uh, sort of collecting physics facts and drawing pictures about them. So I, I, I suppose if you ask where, um, uh, you know, what was the, um, I mean, I should say, by the way, the algorithmic diagrams are all made with Wolfram language. So that that's some, and that was sort of a key part and the symbolic graphics descriptions that are available in our language were very important in making those algorithmic diagrams. I should also say that the, um, uh, actually the person who did the book design, uh, Andre Kuznarek, um, is a, by now, what, 30 year employee of our company and now, uh, has some um, actually is a, in a very senior role with us, um, but um, uh, he um, was the uh, uh, would always give me a hard time for for the level of of micro precision. Although he admitted that the results were really nice, uh, the level of sort of micro precision of uh, with which the, the you know the pages were composed and so on. Um, but yes, I mean I I don't think one could have done that layout if I hadn't done it myself because it really relied on you know. Uh, words and pictures fitting in the right way. It was a little bit crazy to do that. I mean, today I wouldn't do that because it's just a big long scroll and you know, and you don't have to worry about the fitting of this and the fitting of that. But um, uh, back when I thought I was still writing a book, which I was, and I still like the fact that it's in the form factor of a book. And I still like the fact that it has, it's paginated and so on. Um, I mean, I think uh, um, the, um, um, I'll just show, Maybe to, to end here, I just for fun, I can show um, uh, the, let's see if I can pull it up for a second here. I'll just show, you ask the, the aesthetic and you can, you can decide for yourself or not um, what, um, uh, let's see here. Um, let's see, early unpublished books. Okay, let's go to the 12 year old production. Um, so this was, uh, my efforts at, um, uh, yes, I was interested in physics then. Um, okay, there was the, that's not bad. The, but you can see that this was, um, uh, I, I had a certain interest. I, I've never learned, sadly, I've never learned to do proper 3D drawings. I, you know, it's one of the, one of those things that I haven't, um, and you know, these, these, there's a certain people always only do one thing in their lives kind of attitude towards the fact that yes, I was collecting tables of data and yes, Wolfram Alpha is involved in collecting large tables of data. And yes, when I kind of 
but made War from Alpha, I went back and, and typed in random numbers from my 12-year-old effort um, and found out that yes, Wolf Malfa really gives those results. But yeah, I mean, I, I I've sort of been interested in in um, uh, in visual presentation of things for a long time, um, and uh, I think it's it's um, I, I consider it an important part of kind of communicating. I mean, to me today, there are sort of three pieces of communication: uh, natural language text, English text in my case, uh, computational language, and pictures. And I think that those are. All three of those are important forms of communication, and I, I'm very interested in communication, and so I, I try to have a, a decent degree of proficiency at, at all three of those things. And uh, 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 you know, and also I think perhaps realistically I'm something of a perfectionist, and I like to I like to try and see whether I both in ideas and in their presentation I can kind of make things as as perfect as possible. The challenge for the uh, you know the challenge of the perfectionist is is you know how do you make something like the NKS book in only 10 years and not an infinite number of years and never get it finished and that's uh, that's a challenge and i have to say when i was writing the NKS book one of the things that was a good driver you know i had the 12 chapters that i was planning to write but in the end you know the book it's um, if you look very carefully you'll find out it's 1285 pages long and you will discover the the binding technology that we used Kind of maxed out at that number of pages, so I couldn't have written more in the book because it just wouldn't have fit. Um, okay, well, we should wrap up here, and uh, I, I want to say, by the way, we, we've um, we're using a, uh, we're streaming to a new um, platform today, Twitter, as well as um, uh, as well as Twitch and um, YouTube and Facebook, uh, and um, so welcome to anybody who's joining us through through Twitter. Um, we'll be using Twitter. Uh, as well as our other platforms going forward. Um, and uh, uh, I'd like to, um, uh, we are, um, uh, I'm planning to go on to um, to chapter two, uh, same time next week, chapter two is called the, uh, I think I know it by heart, but I'm going to just check it, but to make sure I don't get it wrong. Um, chapter two is called the, um, uh, the crucial experiment. So that's uh, that's what we'll be doing next time. And I think I may learn progressively. Maybe by the time we reach chapter twelve, I will have figured out exactly how to do these um, uh, for the best sort of communication. But um, I, uh, chapter two, I, I would say chapter one is not my favorite. Chapter two might be my favorite. So tune in uh, same time next week for chapter two. I look forward to uh, being with you again then. Thanks a lot. Bye for now. You've been listening to the Stephen Wolfram Podcast. You can read more about Stephen's journeys at writings.stephenwolfram.com. For more information on Stephen's other publications, live streams, and this podcast, visit stephenwolfram.com.